Hello, everybody. This is Two Guys, Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasperi. This is Frank Pellicone. Uh, and this week, we are going to be talking about the top five romantic comedies of all time. Uh, Frank, you wanted to do this list. I'm assuming it was for the month of February for Valentine's Day. Yes, okay. theme list, I guess. Okay, theme list. All right. But I like, I really like romantic comedies. That so. was what I was going to yeah. ask you. Is like, so are you a fan of the genre in particular? I mean, when they're bad, they're there, bad, okay. right? I mean, there can be really bad romantic comedies, sure. and I've seen my fair share. But when I, I, I think when a romantic comedy works, it's one of like the, like the purest ways to enjoy film. I don't know. There's just something really like heartwarming and hopeful and fun about a romantic comedy i mean i guess the element of like the additional element of romance aside from just like a straight comedy adds some like dramatic tension to it because usually there is some misunderstanding or there's some i don't know like obstacle to the romance but um i don't know like i'm, I'm a sucker for a good romantic comedy how many give me a rough percentage of how many romantic comedies you think are good hmm i don't know how many, what percentage of any movie is good, I guess? <laughs> like, I don't know, 20%? Do you think it's, like, like the, the, the failure rate is similar? I don't know, because, like, just because I don't like it doesn't mean it's not effective, right? Like, hmm. plenty of people, like, really like Love Actually, and I do not like Love Actually. Hmm. Or Serendipity, or... Love Actually has become, like, a thing now, you know? Right. Like, a, like a yearly thing that yeah. plays on television and stuff like people that. People really enjoy it. Like, yeah. I... I don't think it's a bad movie. It just holds no appeal to me. But that, you know, so can I say that is that's... Is it because you grandson it? What does that mean? I don't know. I don't know either. Okay. I mean, I saw it in the theater. Maybe I just exposed my own bias then. Right. I don't, I, I don't know. Give me a good you Grant movie. Besides Four Weddings and a Funeral. <sighs> Muriel's Wedding? Isn't he in? No. No. Hmm. I have to look up Hugh Grant yeah. and tell you what he's. A, no, I think he's not in that. That's some, no, he's in. Oh. <laughs> that's somebody else, right? Yeah, it's Dermot yeah. Moroney. I think. Yeah, I think that's my. I'm not going to say that's a victory, but I just okay. It's fine. We can move on. Um, uh, you know what? Hold I on. Think, I think I, I. I. I need to know like a good Hugh Grant. It's not about winning or losing. It's just about me being. Right. Bitter towards Hugh Grant. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, these for. All I'm saying is for the level of fame that he's achieved, it's been based off one movie and it doesn't really hold out at all. Don't you think part of that level of fame, though, too, is like his um, prostitute sting thing? Like that he was generally considered to be like one of the like biggest like up and coming stars of, you know, the age. And then all of a sudden he gets busted with a prostitute while he's like in a relationship with one of the most beautiful women of the time and just kind of. I, I think this, I think he was pretty big during those five years, though. Like before that happened, I think yeah. that derailed his career. If anything, like man, whatever. it's not that important. Like it's it, just a... it feels important to me now. <laughs> Lair of the White Worm. There's a good Hugh Grant movie. I really like that movie a lot. You do like that? Movie. I, I love I that movie actually. I forgot he was in that. I forget that movie exists um, uh, until, you gonna, it, until you bring it up. You're going to yeah. watch it in a few months. <laughs> Okay, let me give you, throw you a few movies before we get into this list. Okay. I want to get your reaction to them since they're not on your list. Um, as romantic comedies. All right. Okay. Um, Breakfast at Tiffany's. Oh, it's, I love Breakfast at Tiffany's. Yeah. I I almost like Breakfast at Tiffany's too much to consider it a romantic comedy, I guess. 
But I, I damn, you want to talk about throwing shade? Right. Like, yeah, I think you just destroyed this list now because <laughs> it, it rises above just being like. And I think all all five of these movies we're going to talk about tonight are legitimately really good movies. Uh-huh. Not like when we do like the horror lists and stuff necessarily, but like Breakfast at Tiffany's is a classic of cinema. I mean, yeah. that's it's my favorite Audrey Hepburn movie. Who's my favorite actress of all time? Like, it's uh-huh. really hard to. Yeah, that Breakfast Stephanie's is a great movie. Right, so I, we'll talk about that someday then. Okay. So oh yeah, need, right. So yeah. we don't need to. Okay, um, <clears throat> one Harry Mansalli. Eh, it's fine, I guess. Yeah, I think it's, I think it, it's two amazing performances that elevate a mediocre movie to me. Okay, like it's fine. It's yeah. it's a fine movie. There's okay. nothing wrong with one Harry Mansalli. I'm just getting quick reactions. Let's see. Um. Say Anything. I really like Say Anything a lot. Yeah. Um, Say Anything is like an honorable mention to this list. I really considered it. Yeah. To me, though, it's like... Did it compete with something else on this list, kind of, that won out? Mm, I wouldn't say it competed. Okay. I, I don't... We, you and I are going to disagree about one of these movies like being like a traditional comedy. Yeah. Um, but I don't know that I really feel like Say Anything is as much a comedy as it is a coming-of-age drama with some comedic elements. Okay. Um, Annie Hall. I really feel weird putting Woody Allen movies on any list anymore because he's such a creep. Like, that really has colored my opinion of yeah. how I feel about his movies. And I've always said, like, my whole life that that wouldn't happen. But, yeah. like, I thought about Annie Hall because I really like Annie Hall. I actually thought about Stardust Memories and Manhattan. I mean, there's plenty of Woody Allen comedies that I think of as romantic comedies that could have oh, gone on sure. the list. Mighty Aphrodite, actually. Right, right. I really Mighty consider Aphrodite's really good. But every time I think of it, I'm like, oh, man, I don't want to talk about Woody Allen. So, okay. until Woody Allen, like, I, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> Un- until Woody Allen s- ceases to exist. Right. I don't know that I can discuss his movies objectively. So, okay. Although, not that this is an objective list ever, but, yeah. Sure. It's really creepy. Uh, Clueless. Oh, I really like Clueless. Yeah. I don't think I think of Clueless more as an ensemble comedy as opposed to a romantic comedy. Okay. To me, those are different things. It's okay. like it, it's a teenage. It's like um, I really like uh, Ten Things I Hate About You. Mm-hmm. I think is a really good comedy. Yeah. Um, but to me, that's more again like a like a teenage comedy or like an ensemble comedy. Like it's not a romantic a romantic comedy. The general focus is really two characters, and that's what compels the movie forward or one character being really unlucky repeatedly in love and even though i guess that kind of happens in clueless like clueless is more about that like 90s valley girl vibe and whatever so yeah uh sleepless in seattle i don't know that i've ever seen sleepless in seattle really i don't think i have weird yeah i know i don't know it doesn't know interest does make ryan right yeah her and tom hanks Oh, right. Because the it's the like, one before you've got mail. Yeah. Like the, the, the actual good one. Yeah, I don't I don't know yeah. if I okay. care to okay. see that. I have seen You Got Mail, so that movie's okay. Imagine that. But better? But better. Okay, that's fine. It's probably it's probably alright then. Like two times three times better. Well, let's not say it much. Okay. okay. Alright. Um uh, that gives us an approximation then on what you feel about sleeps in Seattle. Uh last one, fifty first dates. Shout out to Bledsoe. I don't really remember it. Really? That's true. That's, 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 that's ironic right? because she, you know, the, the main character can't remember it. Right. Um, uh, Drew Barrymore and Adam Sandler? Yes. I remember liking Drew Barrymore in it. Yeah. 
Like I, I Drew Barrymore has a certain. Well, I was going to say. Let me ask this: Is heart. there anything that you don't like Drew Barrymore in? Sure, I'm sure. Oh. I can't think of anything, but mm. I'm sure there's something. Okay. Not a huge fan of the. I really like the Charlie's Angels movies. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, I love Drew Barrymore from when I was like five years old and watching ET. Sure, so sure. I don't know. But it's not like a great movie or anything. It's just it's yeah. it, it it's a good movie. It's charming, I suppose. Yeah, that's a good word. That's one of the yeah. things about romantic comedies is it's really difficult for a romantic comedy to be truly offensive. Yeah. Like it it's hard. You can watch just a comedy comedy, like the terrible like scary movie movies or Shallow Hal or something, and they're really offensive movies. Mm-hmm. Because they're trying hard to be offensive, but with a romantic comedy, because it's so, I mean, it really is meant to make you feel good. Like, it's hard to be offended. At at worst, like, they're kind of just, like, tepid or pablum or whatever, but for the most part, a romantic comedy is going to do what it sets out to do, which is, like, make you all and feel, like, okay about life for, like, 90 minutes, I guess. Yeah. Fifty First Dates is a movie that, like when you watch it on HBO like a bunch of times like like 50 times in like three weeks because it's constantly is showing on there um, it like beats you into submission into liking it hmm. and I don't know I don't think you have that experience I, I mean I watched it once and right. I kind of vaguely remember it yeah. I remember the poster more than I remember the movie it's a good po- it's an effective poster right I always com- I always also confuse it with Spanglish's poster so I don't know because I feel like they were out like really close to each other but um, that yeah might, that might be right yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Um, any other things that you can think of that you like movies that came close to making this list, but um, like Sixteen didn't... Candles, I thought okay. about, um, mm-hmm. and was beaten out by another movie on this list. Um, Heaven Can Wait, uh, Sullivan's Travels, both were close. Um, I don't know. I mean, there's plenty of things. Roman Holiday, you know, I thought about. Um, again, there was a bunch of Woody Allen movies that came close to making it that didn't quite make it. Um, oh, what's the one with, uh, shoot, High Fidelity, right? The one that's based on the book. Um, that, that almost made it. I, you know, there's just a bunch. Like, I, when I, when you, when I think about it, because I don't, if you ask me, like, my favorite genres, I don't think rom-coms would ever, like, pop up off the top of my head. But when I think about them, there's a ton of them that I really enjoy. Yeah. Okay. I also think, so this is another thing, too. Like, I think it's hard to watch older genre movies and still be as moved as you are like with the innovations that have happened in certain genre movies like horror or like suspense or crime you know I think that the western you know it's difficult to watch a western from the 50s and feel the same way about it as when you watch like a Sergio Leone western or when you watch you know like some of the stuff like Unforgiven or whatever that we talked about because there's so much innovation that's happened but you can watch Bringing Up Baby. That's another one, a good example that mm-hmm. almost made the list. Yeah. And Bringing Up Baby stands the test of time to romantic comedies that were made like in the past five years. Mm-hmm. Because they're just, I, I guess they're just universal. Like everybody's looking for like love or whatever and everybody feels awkward and alone at right. times. And I think that's the best romantic comedies are about those people that are kind of like outsiders that find love in like an odd place or, you know. And where they least expect it or whatever. And, you know, I think that that's universal. And I think that it's it's easy to watch a movie from, like, the 30s or 40s that's a romantic comedy and still, like, become invested in it. Whereas, you watch, like, I don't know, like, some random 
black and white like sci-fi movie from the 30s and it's just kind of like cheesy and you roll your eyes you know yeah. maybe it's because the human condition is universal and like special effects like become more prevalent in those other movies or language right. or violence or whatever right yeah okay um do you want to go ahead and get started sure okay before we get started i just wanted to remind everybody that um you can um follow us on uh, itunes or the apple podcast app or stitcher or Google Play anywhere that you're uh, that uh, you can listen to the podcast. Uh, we're there. Uh, you can subscribe. Uh, please leave reviews if possible. We would love to get feedback. You can also email us at two guys five movies at gmail.com. That's the number two and five two guys five movies at gmail.com. Uh, you can also follow our Facebook page. Um, so the first movie you have in your list, number five on this list, Frank, is. The 1941 film The Lady Eve, directed by Preston Sturgis, starring Barbara Stanswyck, Henry Fonda, and Charles Coburn. Rotten Tomatoes critic score has it at a 100, um, audience at an 87. Uh, the caveat there is the 100 is I think there's like six reviews from critics right. um, because it's so old. But um, all of them positive, um, largely positive from audiences. Um, so did you want to go ahead and tell us a little bit about this movie and why you like it so much? Um, so first of all, Sturgis is one of my favorite, like, I guess rom-com, but just like classic directors. Like, I love the way the Sturgis films actors and sets scenes, and he's just, he's a brilliant director in my opinion. Um, Henry Fonda plays Charles Pike, who is a, I don't know what you'd call him, not botanist, but he studies animals. He's like a naturalist or whatever who's coming back from a safari, basically like this extended tour of, I guess maybe it's the Amazon or whatever, and catches this steam liner that's heading back to the United States, um, immediately becomes the center of attention because he comes from a family, like a really wealthy um, brewing family, uh, where he's worth millions of dollars. All the women on board like want to gather his attention, um, but the one that marks him is... Um, the Barbara Stanwyck character, who is a uh, Jean, um, who's a card sharp. She's a hustler. She's there with her quote unquote father and um, another guy that's like works on the boat, but it's also like an inside man to their, um, you know, their, their schemes. Uh, she hooks him immediately. Um, really great scene of seduction in her, like um, her stateroom or whatever. But also falls in love with them over the course of time, um, you know, them hanging out together where she no longer wants to take him for his money. She actually wants to be with him and in a lot of ways, like, forces her her father off of scamming him. Um, however, he's protected by one of my favorite characters in the movie, uh, Ambrose Murgatroyd, or Muggsy, who's like a rough, um, like, typical 40s, like, tough guy who's protecting Pike. Um, her secrets revealed that she's a card sharp. Uh, Pike feels betrayed and dismisses her and goes back to his life. So she works up a scheme where she then impersonates this British heiress who comes to his house and pretends like she doesn't know him and causes him to fall in love with her again with the idea that she's going to take vengeance on him, uh, which she kind of does. Uh, but in the end they end up together and it's, um, it's a really good uh, classic, like, slapstick, screwball comedy. Um, a lot of quick wit, a lot of, like, physical comedy to it. 
Um, it's just really, again, like really beautifully filmed, uh, black and white. You know, it's great performances by Fonda and Stanwyck. Um, really good, like minor performance by Coburn as um, Fonda's father, and then, or I'm sorry, Coburn as uh, Stanwyck's father, and um, the guy Eugene Pellet or whatever that plays uh, Fonda's father does a really good job too. Um, just really well done. It, it's interesting because, like, when when you think about, I'm I'm a sucker for like a strong female character in a movie, especially like when in a genre where you don't really think about that. So in like the forties and fifties, usually the female is like the innocent. She's the naive, naive, you know, one that's being like worked by the more experienced, like devilish man that falls for her charms. And this is the complete opposite of that, where Fonda is the, you know, he's the innocent. He's got no life experience and doesn't know how to interact with women and falls for her charms. And in turn, she falls for him. Like he softens her. I mean, um, that's, that's correct unless you go into noir and then it's, you know, usually equal footing. Like, But then the woman's the villain. And I don't right. know that sure. Barbara yeah. Stanwyck, e- even though her initial intentions are, you know, not necessarily good. Like, she's got, you know, she's going to scam the guy in the beginning. Like, she falls for him pretty quick. And, it, like, almost within the first, like, 20, 25 minutes. Like, it's really about the 20-minute mark where... You can see her falling for him where they're doing the thing where he's like putting her shoes on for her, like um Oh that's that's even earlier. Like I, it's it's to me it's the like the, almost like the sofa scene. Like when Oh yeah, falling, when they're laying together yeah, on the sofa. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Yeah. So she falls for him and she really becomes protective. So whereas in like Noir, the femme fatale is kind mm-hmm. of always the bad guy. Um, she's never really the femme fatale. They're yeah. really just kind of like Yeah. So I mean, I, maybe like the type of character like like this, and uh, maybe his girl Friday, right? Like you know, like kind of tough as nails, like, yeah. Type, yeah. Well, she is, and yeah. definitely wily and intelligent. But even though he's naive, he's never really an idiot. Mm-hmm. Like he's always he's really smart about certain things. They're just not practical things that he's smart about, right? And he's not... And he's inexperienced. Right. He's not a sucker. He just really, like, genuinely falls in love with her. Right. And to the point where when he sees someone that looks like her, even though, I mean, it is her, but he thinks that it's a different person, like, he kind of forces himself to fall in love with her, too, just to replace the loss of, you know, Jean. And that's that's the, the titular Lady Eve, because she's this... There's another part of their circle of, like, scam artists that's lived in this rich community and pretended to be an English lord. To, like, take money from people. And she comes in pretending to be his niece that's over from England. Came over on a battleship or whatever. Um, And he, like, pretends to fall in love with her. But then uses the same lines because he's so naive that he just, he doesn't know what else to do. So he's using, like, these, these, like, sentiments that he felt legitimately for Gene that he now is, like, trying to force into this Eve character. Um, And so in the end, when they end up together, you know, when he... Because he wants nothing to do, you know, he gets married to Eve, but then he wants nothing to do with her because he finds out that she's had sex with, like, 50 men. Right. Um, and he's horrified by that because he, I guess he's he's kind of attracted to the idea of, like, the woman being, like, it being, like, a monogamous relationship and not having Sure, to and, and he wants her, well, yeah, right. And he really just time, wants He wants her to be virginal and, like, you know, I mean, all those kind of things. Well, he really just wants the woman that he was in love with. Like, he was never really in love with Eve. He just right. was in love with the image of this person that he left. Yeah. So when they meet up at the end, when they're back on, like, the steam liner and they meet again, 
because she trips him and they end up going into his his stateroom at that point they're both then like flawed like they've both done something mm. to be like maybe ashamed of but they can accept each other and it makes it um and i really like that ending where they're just kind of like he's still married she's still a scam artist but now they can be together because they both right. have these well part of it with him is like i mean he was always in love even the first time he knew her he was in love with a lie it was like still stuck he was still putting what he wanted her to be or what he thought she sure. was like you know on to her and the idea is that he comes to accept whatever it is that she is yeah i don't i don't know if it's a lie as much as it's just an omission like she's just leaving out a very large portion of yeah why she met him in the first place but i genuinely like the hopsy and all that stuff i think that's her like i think that's who it's she is sure yeah. And I think she, I mean, she genuinely is in love with him at yeah. that point because she's willing to give up, like, this life that she's known in her, like, quote-unquote family to go and be with this man. Mm. Now, granted, she's going to be with a man who's a multimillionaire and an heir to, like, a, a fortune. But at the same time, like, you feel there's yeah. genuine affection. Um, I couldn't find too much criticism uh, of this. I had to go into the audience reviews and start looking around. And the consensus that I found is that the... Uh, reading between the lines were like audience reviewers which don't know really how to be specific or you know explain themselves is right. that it's um the characters are like flat like they they're not very um rounded like in any way like they're i mean sure but yeah. it's a comedy like it's not that was the other thing is that it, like it's that people didn't see the humor in it do you well know? because that's the time period yeah you're yeah. watching a comedy and I wasn't even going to bring sort it Sort of in, like, the... Like, I, I I still find parts of it really funny. And yeah. I think that Fonda... And there's a lot of scenes where he, like... You really have to, like, be able to laugh at, like, physical comedy, I think, in a lot of ways. Or, like, yeah. you know, when, um, when Father Pike is sitting outside and, like, banging the table and ringing the bell because no one's brought him his breakfast and right. all these people keep coming out and almost bringing him his breakfast and yeah. it's just little things like that are really funny Agreed. and yeah. you know I think that Henry Fonda does a really good job playing like a straight man but also like the comedic foil to everything mm. you know because he's like tripping over the tables and he's just he's he's bumbling but he's not really bumbling he's just so confused and in love that he can't help himself but like yeah. fall over the place and... i really like henry fonda for the first half on the ship and then i just think he becomes dull and uninteresting really for like the second half of that movie it's it's tough to like him when they're back in the house like yeah. when they go back to the mansion especially like when he's so quick to like try to force himself to be in love with her mm -hmm. when he thinks that she's the lady eve it's almost like there's a difference in the performance though to me I like, think because his heart's broken, and yeah. I think that's on purpose. I mean, I think he's yeah. he's meant to seem like a shell of a man. Yeah, maybe he just doesn't convey that word very well to me. Like the that that aspect of it. Maybe and, I don't know. Hard. I mean, I find it hard to. Like I, I love Henry Fonda, so yeah. And like I, I think you to see me it. though, like Stanwick is the star. Oh, of she's this. amazing, and she's it. like a powerhouse right. in this damn movie. Yeah, like, she's she's fantastic. Um, like I don't know how anybody can watch this movie and not fall in love with right. her. And it's interesting because she's not really a classical beauty. Like, she's got a very, no, um... No, she's not. I don't know how to describe it. Like, Oliver Twist look to her or something? I don't know how. I don't, I don't know what that means. What is, I, yeah, I, just, I, that's, that's, that's the first thing that came to mind. Like, I can picture I, her, like, tough as nails, like, in the cobblestone streets of London, like, asking for more porridge or whatever. But, um, 
I don't know. Like we'll, talk, we'll talk about it off air. I have yeah. somebody that I'm going to tell you. I'm going to say to you. Not not really a classical yeah. beauty, but definitely like someone that's like captivating. And yes, she's yeah. such a strong character, and it's such like a like an effortless, effortlessly sensual and charming performance that like you you want to see her succeed. Yeah, and I you think do. that says something when you're talking about somebody that's a career criminal, basically like a scam artist and you're rooting for them almost from the beginning, you know, to get the guy like it, it's, it's a great performance. And again, I, yeah. I think that also has to do with Sturgis because in all of his movies, I mean, I haven't seen all of Sturgis's movies, all the ones I've seen, like Sturgis is not afraid of showing the negatives of, of a character. Like mm-hmm. he understands that humans are flawed. Mm-hmm. Like there's no perfect people in Preston Sturgis's world, but he films people in such a way that's so humane you know, that it's just, um, I don't know, it's really charming, and I... Going back to the flat characters thing quickly, do you think that, um, like, uh, like, characters not being complex in romantic comedies is, like, a common thing? Like, that you, that, 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 it, that it's hard to have complex characters when you're trying to go that route sometimes? So, maybe. And maybe in, like, a 40s studio film like this, probably more so. Mm-hmm. I don't think that any of the other four movies on this list fall into that mm-hmm. category. I think that every movie is pretty complex in their characterization sure. yeah. after this one. But sure, I mean, because you're, I don't know, you're, number one, you're working in the confines of a studio system at this point, mm-hmm. right? So there's certain things that you can and can't do. And I think that Preston Sturgis really pushes the envelope to that, you know, because you're implying that these unmarried people have had sex and that, you know, she's basically coming out and saying, like, well, I'm very promiscuous, like, as Lady Eve, even though it's not true necessarily. Right. yeah, yeah. Like, it still is a characterization that's pretty uncommon for that time. Mm-hmm. So the only people that really matter are, you know, um, Charles and, and Jean, really. Mm-hmm. Everybody else is just a set piece and it's just something yeah. to, you know, advance the plot. Like, Murgatroyd is hilarious in this movie. The, um, whatever, um, Muggsy. But there's no depth to him. He's just, like, you know, he performs a function. So, I don't know. I don't know if that answers your question. It does, yeah. Um, I think the thing that people are saying it's unfunny is... I think I think you spoke to it already with like not really kind of getting the physical comedy of that time right. period and stuff like that. But I mean, I it's not like out, laugh out loud funny. Like a lot of those older movies aren't laugh out loud funny right. to me. Like it's it's they one make of those you things, smile. Right, they make you smile. Yeah, um, it's a, it's a feeling more than it is a reaction. I mean, look, there was times where people were in uproarious laughter, like the Three Stooges and stuff. Sure, and yeah. I. I have a certain appreciation for like that and the Marx Brothers, but none of that stuff makes me like guffaw. Yeah, but it's 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 funny. Like I recognize that it's funny and it's really well done. But you know, I mean, it's just different. Like things. Watching this because it's the first '40s movie we've watched in a while. Um, like you know, for this list anyway, and um, it's given me an itch because it's uh, I love the the back and forth right uh the dialogue, snappy dialogue the snappy dialogue yeah um like I, I i miss that like a lot um uh where everything's so slow and 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 the slow is probably more realistic don't get me wrong like that back and forth i mean sorkin and any paladino get criticized all the time like for like you know being unrealistic in their dialogue a lot of times um and like their writing style yeah. for those kind of things and it probably is unrealistic like even like 
you know, back. But it's still fun. Right, but it's fun, you know, and it's charming. And I think it works perfectly with, like, romantic comedies. I agree. Um, So, um, yeah. Um, Any final thoughts on this? No, it's just, it's it's a wonderful movie. I think that if you... I don't know that everyone in our modern world can, like, take old movies but if if you find that you have the the attention span and the patience to sit through them like you really need to check out Preston Sturgis because he's amazing and at least there's three like Heaven Can Wait um Sullivan's Travels and Lady Eve like all three are are definitely worth watching um yeah it was a fun watch it was the first time I've seen it and I, I really enjoyed it um okay so moving on to number four on your list we have the 1997 film directed by P.J. Hogan, My Best Friend's Wedding, starring Julia Roberts, Rupert Effort, Dermot Moroney, um, and Cameron Diaz. Uh, has a 73% score from audiences from Rotten Tomatoes and a 73% from critics. Mm. Um, so did you want to go ahead and tell everybody a little bit about the plot of this movie and what you like about it? Uh, so Julia Roberts plays Julianne, who's a food critic. Um who gets a call from her longtime best friend slash former paramour played by Dermot Mulroney, who I will tell you whose name I will fuck up repeatedly because I can never remember Dermot Mulroney. Did I, did, did I mess it up when I said, I don't know. Okay. I, like even when I, I was, I was trying I to be very it particular. Said, it doesn't make any sense. It's like Cthulhu or something. Like, <laughs> it's like if, if you hear it totally, it like drives you insane, I guess. I don't right. know. I mean, it's like Dermot. It doesn't yeah. make any, anyway. Yeah. Um, so she flies out to Chicago to be with him because he says that he needs to talk to her. She has always, if you get the impression, she's always harbored the fantasy that they're going to end up together, but he reveals that he's engaged to this much younger, um, girl, uh, played by Cameron Diaz, um, Kimmy, who's an heir, again, an heir to like a huge, like fortune. Um, Julia Roberts turns into the biggest scumbag on the earth, (laughs) trying to break up this coupling um and Kimmy is absolutely just like a charming, innocent, friendly, loyal, absolutely like wonderful person. And Julia Roberts is this chain smoking, mean spirited like harridan who's trying to like sabotage their relationship at every step. Um and ultimately, like to the credit of this movie fails, you know, right. and Dermot Moroni ends up with uh Cameron Diaz. Um it is Number one, it's 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 an interesting take on the romantic comedy because you look at like the two main characters, and Julia Roberts really is the central character of this mm-hmm. movie, and she doesn't end up with the guy. Right. And I like to me that was really surprising when I saw it because I thought like when you first get introduced to Cameron Diaz, you kind of think she's gonna end up being like shrill or stupid or right. you know, you're gonna find a reason to like root for Julia Roberts, but to the credit of this movie, like, they never give you a reason to root for Julia Roberts over Cameron Diaz. Like, you're always rooting for Cameron Diaz. And the reason that I love this movie so much is because it is one of the most, like, fucking surreal movies I've ever watched in my life. It is absolutely absurd at points, the things that happen in this movie. Yes. And it's really, like, small absurdities, but they're so prevalent and they're just there. And it's almost like... It's almost like Jodorowsky making a romantic comedy. Some give of the give me an example. So, I mean, the opening scene with the um, show them that you care, whatever that song's called. Yeah. Um, with them, like. Oh, with the black backdrop. Like, no, it, oh. it's it's like pink. It's kind of like Material Girl, basically. It, okay. The way that they're like doing it. 
Um, and then there's, so there's a lot of music in this movie that's done naturally through people singing the music, mm-hmm. like in the movie. So there's the scene in, um, the restaurant when they're yeah. going to, so Julia Roberts takes, um, Rupert Everett, who's like super gay, like right, yeah. out, outwardly gay. And, right. Like yeah, he's never, out and yeah, there's, there's never no, any like pretense yeah. in the movie that he's not gay yeah. and convinces him to fly out to Chicago and pretend to be her fiance. Right. And so she takes him to dinner or to their brunch where they're like right. celebrating and he makes up this ridiculous story about how they like met and how he's saying say a little prayer to her. Right. Which devolves into the entire restaurant singing say a little prayer, which yeah. in and of itself is kind of ridiculous. But then they're in this, it's like a lobster house. Yeah. And the waiters have like lobster claws that they're wearing. And at one point when everyone's singing, there's just like waiters in the background, like swaying with their lobster claws yeah. in the yeah. air. And it's like so absurd, yeah. like the visual. Agreed. Uh, I'm, I'm interested because that's what I thought you were talking about. But do you think there's more stuff? Like oh my that? God, there's so much. Because that now that I did feel it's like one of those things where it's like, yeah, it's almost like you get like a little lightheaded, like in some ways, like or like your eyes strain or something. Right. It's like what's happening? Like you know, it's so out of left field because they they do so little to highlight the fact that the servers are wearing lobster claws. Like yeah. there's no visual gag about it. Right, it's just there. It's just right. part of it. So when you see it for the first time, right. you're like, what am I watching? But even the fact that like everybody starts singing, it's just like you know, it's almost like you're mesmer- It's almost right. like a tr- it's almost like a train wreck in some ways. But it's, I've also had a smile on my face. Right, like, it's, it's incredibly like, charming. Right, yeah, because it's like all these mm-hmm. and they're like a lot of them aren't very like necessarily good singers, but they're all singing together. Like right. it feels yeah. like really natural. Yeah. So then there's another scene later when Julia Roberts pulls Dermot Moroni aside, and they're on like the tennis courts, and the younger siblings of um, Cameron Diaz's family have or no it's um Dermot Roney's younger brother mm-hmm. is there with his friends and there's a bunch of helium balloons mm-hmm. and they're sucking the helium out and like talking to each other right. and while they're having this like like dramatic tense conversation on this tennis court they're singing with these helium voices in the background and there's like thousands of colored balloons just like kind of floating around right. them there's also and th- this is the thing that actually when I saw this movie for the first time and this is a movie that I had no intention of watching when it came out. I felt like it was just going to be, like, a bad movie. Um, But somebody, like, some girl convinced me to stay after work. I was working at the movie theater at the time for Regal Cinemas. Convinced me to stay after and watch it. And it was, the moment I'm about to talk about is the moment where I started to think, like, holy shit, like, this movie is really weird. Mm -hmm. And it's when Julia Roberts is chasing Cameron Diaz down after Cameron Diaz has seen Julia Roberts try and kiss Dermot Moroney. Right, when they're the car chase. Well, it's after the... So they go through the car chase right. and they end up in, um, what is it, the Cubs Stadium, the yes. Wrigley Field. Mm-hmm, really, uh-huh. And they're in the bathroom of Wrigley Field and right. Julia Roberts is screaming, Kimmy, which is Cameron Diaz's character. Right. And there's this woman on like a scooter <laughs> in the bathroom and she starts going, Kimmy, Kimmy. And so like... Julia Roberts is like, Kimmy! And then underneath it's like, Kimmy! Oh, yeah. And then when Julia Roberts finds her, like, all these women gather around and form, like, this, I don't know, like, Thunderdome circle around them and are just, like, trying to force it. But instead of, like, devolving into, like, like crass humor, like, they immediately see, I don't know, it's just, it's so, it's just weird. It's all weird. And there's a lot of really weird stuff. Mm-hmm. And... The ridiculousness of Rupert Everett, like, going along with it and, mm-hmm. you know, pretending to be her her man, like, 
So you, you've, you've laid out all the stuff that's weird and ridiculous about this. What what do you like about it? I like that. I find oh, it okay. Really, I right. find it really charming. Oh, okay. This is an example of the things you like right. about it. Right. Like, okay. it makes me love this movie because right. it's not just... Because in all honesty, it's kind of a formulaic plot. Like, even though you don't really see this plot very much, and honestly, you know, again, like, the pro, quote-unquote protagonist, like, not when... Like, basically, the villain being the centerpiece of the movie... Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's something yeah. that you don't really see ever, yeah. especially in a romantic comedy. Sure. It makes it all the more romantic when Dermot Moroni realizes, like, I really love this woman, mm-hmm. and I really want to marry this woman. Yeah. And Julia Roberts is like, you know what? Like, that's the right thing to happen. Like, you should love her because she's right. Right, there's you. some kind of recognition she's the villain. Right. Oh, she yeah. realizes it several yeah. times. Sure, sure, movie. yeah. And keeps doing it anyway. But, I mean, she does realize it and just realizes when it's time to cut her losses yeah. and, and, and let it happen. And it's just, like, the performances are fantastic. I mean, really, like, Roberts is fantastic in it. I love Cameron Diaz in it. Robert, Roberts, because I want to say right before this, she has she has some trouble in the years before this, right? That's like, I love trouble and a couple other movies that are just kind of bombs. Right. Like, you know, and then she comes back with this. Like, sh- this is one of my favorite roles of hers. It has to be. Like, one of my favorite roles. Yeah, she's and doing. it's because she's so mm. vulnerable, and she's so, like... It's almost like you took... I don't know, like... I don't even know how to explain it. I mean, she's... We, we, we grew up where Julia Roberts was, like, the female actress of our age. Sure. In terms of... Whenever you ask anyone, like, who's the most beautiful or who's, right, like, yeah. you know, from Pretty Woman and whatever, sure. like, people always said Julia Roberts. Mm-hmm. And to play, like, such a vulnerable, almost, like, mentally unhinged mm-hmm. role and do it where, you know, she she knows that she's being psychotic. Like, mm-hmm. one of my favorite scenes in this movie, and I think it's a brilliant scene, is where... Can I guess? Hold on. Okay. Giamatti? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. when... When, um... When Dermot Moroni, like, she's done her machinations and, you know, tried to get Dermot Moroni to, like, t- tried to, like, send this email to Dermot Moroni's boss to get him fired. But under the pretense that it's, like, Kimmy and her father, like, these wealthy, like, barons, like, trying to get this done. And he says, you know, I got to break up with her. And she feels sick about it because she knows she's done the wrong thing. And she goes out into the hallway of the hotel and is smoking a cigarette. And Paul Giamatti is just this, like, hangdog bellhop that's like, you can't smoke here, but then she gets him to smoke with her. And it's just such, like, a... Such good dialogue and such a good performance by both of them. And it's just such a small, like, scene in the movie. But it lends, like, this air of real... I I love the fact that it's, like, so absurd at times, but so honestly human at other times. And it's such a good, like, coupling. And the fact that... People are just breaking out into song randomly in the movie, but it's not like some ridiculous, like in the, like after this you would have, you know, like the Drew Carey thing with the people, like everyone dancing in the streets sure. and, or like in Buffy, you know, with mm-hmm. whatever, once more with feeling, yeah. it's just like people are just singing and it's, yeah. it's natural. Like it's yeah. not staged. It's just like, Hey, like we're all together. We're all going to sing this song and it's absurd, but it's yeah. like fun. And I don't know. And she reacts to it pretty negatively and again it's because she's the villain right you know like um everybody else is happy and she's not um a couple of things i want to bring up like one rupert effort this is as good as julia roberts's best part of this movie right he's amazing in it 
Rupert Everett's amazing in this movie. Completely charming and suave and compassionate. Yes. And shows that even though Julia Roberts is the villain of the movie, she's not inhuman. And she's not... She's just a villain in this set of circumstances. She's not a villain in real life. Right. And that there's still this person that loves her enough to like help her out and help her through it. And that's, and that's the other thing that I wanted to bring up was the idea that like, yeah, okay. Like, you know, the, the male lead really, and like the minor female character end up together because in some ways that's the couple and the villain is promoted to the main character. Um, it's like, you know, and that's like kind of like upending the tradition enough but it's actually, in some ways, by the end of this, it's redefining what love actually means. Right. Exactly. You know, and then that's the the genius, to some degree, of this movie. And for for what it is, because it's like, you know, it's not, it's not great cinema, but it's really good. And it, like, you know, and it does, you know, I wouldn't put it on a top 100 list, is what I'm saying. Like, you know, I might. I'll be really? honest with you. I, I really love but this it, movie. But I think it's really brilliant what it does with the concept of love by the end of that is, like, it doesn't have to be this, like, you know, um, you know, you know, the stall, stars falling in the background right. and, you know, like, this intense, ever-burning thing. Like, you know, it can just be platonic, platonic right. between... Two really good friends. Here's the other thing I really like about this movie, too. Because, again, the first time I saw it, like, I really hadn't watched many trailers. It just seemed kind of like like a dumb romantic comedy to me. But it really caught me off guard because I kept waiting for Julia Roberts to meet, like, the quote-unquote other guy Mm -hmm. that she was going to end up falling in love with. And it's really, I think, kind of bold Mm -hmm. that you take someone that's Mm -hmm. such a star at this time... And not have them end up with the guy. Right. Like, she doesn't yeah. get the guy. And not even, like, the guy she was going after. But she doesn't even get, like, the consolation guy. You know, she's maybe just going to be alone. And maybe that's okay because she yeah. has this best friend. Well, it's kind of the Rolling Stones cliche. You might not get what you right. want. But you, you get, get what, what you need. need. You know? I mean, and that's what really happens at the end. I mean, and it basically, like, you know... At, Rupert Everett's character has the final say on all of that. Right. You know, when they're dancing and he says, like, you know... Um, you know, there's not going to be any sex, you know, and there's, you know, but, you know, we can dance, you know, and at least we have that and it ends with a shot on them happy, yeah. you know, I mean, um, you know, there's something, you know, and that, I think that's a really clever and, um, optimistic way to look at things. I mean, I've seen this movie, and this might surprise you, I've probably seen this movie like 10 or 11 times. Okay. Um, this is a movie where when I'm dating someone, if they've never seen it, like uh-huh. I will make them watch my best friend's wedding. Okay. Or like when you're like, when you meet like someone and they're like talking about movies you like and you mention it, like it always surprises them. Uh-huh. I honestly think this is, I, I, I think it's a pretty great movie. I yeah. think it's, I think it's an underrated modern classic, honestly. And yeah. I think that because it's so weird and it's almost like such a blip within Julia Roberts, like scope of her career. Mm-hmm. In a lot of ways, even though it was like a really successful movie, like it did really well at the box office. But I don't know. I think that people like undervalue it, maybe because of the fact that it is kind of just a romantic comedy, and people don't necessarily think of those as being like. It's not like immediately what you think of when you think of like great cinema. But man, like I, I really love this movie. I think it's, I think it's a brilliant film, and I think it's criminally underrated. Even though it's eighty three percent or whatever, like I think it's it's a much better movie. Seventy three percent. Oh wow, um, that's even worse. 
I want to go ahead. Uh, I, I picked Owen Gleiberman from Entertainment Weekly. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember him. Oh, I remember yeah. him. Okay. Um, you know, I, you ask me that every time you bring up Owen Gleiberman. I, I don't know if you remember him. I remember Owen Gleiberman. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. Um, <clears throat> I don't think it's ever been done on air. I think I ask you at other times. Like, no, you say it every time. You're like, uh, Owen, Owen Gleiberman. I don't know if you remember him from Entertainment I, Weekly. I don't. <laughs> Um, <laughs> you'll have to go back through your notes and find out every time you brought up Owen yeah, Gleiberman yeah, and yeah. I'll go back and listen to the podcast okay. All right. I'll make a compilation for you so um, I'm going to read a paragraph at a time and let you respond because the first paragraph um, I'll let you respond Okay. he says when Roberts is on screen with Mulroney we don't feel romance or chemistry or much of anything else. Mulroney seems a frat house slickster, jerky smug, all dimples and permatan, and it's never convincing that a flower like Roberts would be this obsessed with him. My best friend's wedding tries to carry the tempo, uh, carry the audience along with the busy lurching plot and a few great Burt Backrack songs, but beneath its screwball packaging, it fails to convince us that Julia Roberts truly belongs with this guy. It doesn't convince us because the film to our dismay doesn't believe it either right but that's not to your dismay that means Owen Lieberman's an idiot like the point of the movie is she she values her independence so much that she's convinced herself that when she gets to the point where she doesn't value her independence anymore she'll just be with Dermot Moroni she's not meant to be with him like they they're friends, and in the same way that she can be with Rupert Everett and be friends and have a good time, it's the same thing. But because she, that's a guy that she's had sex with at one point, and she doesn't want to commit to anyone, it's that whole, like, when I'm 40, I'll marry this guy kind of thing. So, like, it lets her not have a real relationship with anyone else because, oh, well, you know, at some point I'm going to be with him. But it's not because she's not meant to be with him. Mm-hmm. Like, Kimmy is the Cameron Diaz character, again, innocent but she's not very bright, you know what I mean? Mm. Like, And they don't make her out to be dumb, mm. but she's just not... Like, Julia Roberts is an educated, well-spoken, powerful, driven woman, <clears throat> and Cameron Diaz is a person that's willing to give up going to school to live with her husband, you know? Even though, like, she doesn't want to do that necessarily, like, she's willing to do that, and Julia Roberts isn't. And he's a guy that's willing to, you know, settle down with this woman and... Whatever. Like, they're they're meant to be together. And that's what the movie is showing you. But it keeps tricking you in the other direction by making you think you're supposed to be rooting for Julia Roberts. I mean, it's it's brilliant, like, how it tricks you into thinking, like... You keep thinking, like, okay, well, when's it going to happen where I'm going to see, like, why they're meant to be together? But then they keep showing you that they're not. And that's the moral, is that sometimes it's not the person you think you're supposed to be with that you're supposed to be with. Okay. Yeah. No. Thank you. Oh, and Lieberman. You're right. So, this is why Entertainment Weekly failed. <laughs> I think it's still really successful. Uh, oh. I haven't read it in years. <laughs> um. <laughs> All right, next paragraph. It's the Fraser Principle. Uh, that's what I call it because it was the first time I ever had that experience where it's like, I was actually reading Entertainment Weekly like back in like the late 90s and saw Fraser was still number one on the Nielsen ratings. And I had stopped watching Frasier like three seasons before that, like because it's in its like seventh season or something by this point. 
and it went off the edge um, mm-hmm. in terms of its its value. And I stopped watching it. And I looked at it and I was like, who still watches Frasier? Right. Because I didn't watch Frasier. I thought nobody else watched Frasier. But still number one of the Nielsen's. Um, the second kind of complaint uh, from Gleiberman is he says that the characters in the movie don't banter. They spout earnest psychobabble. And so we can't take pleasure in the stylized plot the way we do at the romantic comedies of the pre-therapeutic era. He goes on to praise Rupert Everett and say that, like, you know, because of all of this, like, you know, we're grateful when he shows up. Um, He goes on to praise him some more. He says the trouble is his bits are wedged into the movies like hors d'oeuvres. Um, they make you more aware of how little comic nimbleness there is to the rest of the proceedings in the movie. And when Everett leads a packed restaurant into a spontaneous, which he puts in quotation marks, sing-along version of I Say a Little Prayer, I watched a scene with a mixture of joy and horror. It's an exuberant riff on one of the greatest pop songs ever written, and yet, like Meg Ryan's fake orgasm and When Harry Met Sally, it's there as a contrived sop to the audience, a feel-good video on planet in the movie. So, how do you, I guess, respond to the idea that it's, like, besides Rupert Effort, which at least he agrees, I guess, with that, but it's, right. like, there's common ground, but it's, like, that nothing else is really funny, like, whatsoever in the movie besides his scenes? Because I think it's, I, maybe this is just me, yeah. maybe it's me reading too much into it, I think it's an absurdist comedy, and I think mm-hmm. it really is, like, it's almost, I mean, parody isn't the right word, but it's almost a... Yeah, I mean, I guess parody of a romantic comedy. It's it's almost a dark comedy in a lot of ways, but it never lets itself sink into darkness. Like it's just it it's it, it's just it's weird and it I don't know, like you can't like it's telling that he's trying to compare it to, you know, the pre-psychoanalysis, mm-hmm. which is really like a dig at, you know, Woody Allen and what came after that in sure. a lot of ways. Sure. But it's so, it, it just, it, I don't know how to say it. I think he just missed the point to me. Or maybe like I get too well, much of a point. Well, the first paragraph shows that he missed the point. Right. Like, maybe I get too much of a point out of it. Or maybe I'm reading things into it that aren't there. But like, I really think it's, I, I think it's really funny. Like there's a lot of scenes in that movie that make me laugh, like laugh out loud laugh. Mm-hmm. And I watched this last week or maybe the week before. Um... With, with my son, who's almost 18, and he laughed at it. I mean, and he's, I wouldn't say jaded, but he definitely doesn't, like, laugh out loud at a lot of stuff like that. But we both really enjoyed it. And I, again, I've seen this movie probably close to a dozen times and never not enjoyed it, even though I know it so well that I know exactly what's coming. Like, there's always something small that surprises me yeah. in it. So, I don't know. I mean, each his own. Like, maybe right. own, own Lieberman, just a sad, sad man. Um, what did he give it like a C or something I think it was actually I can't remember I didn't write it down I think it was actually worse I want to say it was like a D plus or something like really that. yeah I think if I remember correctly <clears throat> I, I can't see I can't remember any contemporaneous like feeling about it again like I paid no attention to it before it came out it was mixed and um, had no interest but like contemporaneous and, reviews it was pretty mixed which tricked it to seeing it yeah. kind of but then I really I don't know. like positive reviews nobody raved about it um positive reviews were <laughs> Uh, like uh, th- like Ebert, I think has it at three out of four. You know, like I mean, I did nothing like Pretty nobody positive. like had it. Well, yeah, it was yeah. A very positive review. But um, 
nothing was like you know over the top like okay. about it but like positive reviews were positive you know firmly positive and the negative reviews were um a lot of times it seemed everybody loved Rupert Everett <laughs> um and um I mean I love it I think it's a great movie I think that all the performances are really good and I agree, I, you know, I agree with his assessment of, of Dermot Moroni. I mean, yeah. that's what he is in that movie. Yeah. And you never, as as a person removed from the events taking place, you never see why that chemistry was there. Right. Except that you can see why he would be in love with Julia Roberts. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I think that's the point. So, yeah. I don't know. I agree. Okay, so number three on the list uh, is Billy Wilder's 1960 film The Apartment, starring Jack Lemmon, Shirley MacLaine, Fred McMurray, and Ray Walston. Uh, I include Ray Walston only because uh, he's just a favorite of mine, um, even though he's a minor character. Uh, 94% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, 94% again from the audience on Rotten Tomatoes. Did you want to go ahead and explain... uh, what the plot of this movie is and why you like it so much um, and why it's a comedy. Right. I knew you were going to ask that. So Jack Lemon plays um, Bud Baxter. He's a low-level accountant in a gigantic New York accounting firm or um, insurance firm, insurance insurance, um, with 31,742 employees, I think is the number he quotes. Mm-hmm. Um, he loans out his apartment to executives that work at the firm in order for them to carry out their extramarital affairs in relative like privacy. Um, He does so number one, because he's kind of a coward and he allows himself to be bullied. Um, And he's just really like a nice guy, but also because he kind of hopes to gain some sort of like um, career advantage out of it, uh, which eventually he does Mm -hmm. um, gets promoted um, and finds out that the head of, uh, with personnel, Sheldrake, um, who initially scares him into thinking that he's been caught and he's going to get arrested for, like, fraud. Um, turns out that Sheldrake wants to use his apartment for an extramarital affair as well, and that's what gets him the promotion. Um, over the course of the movie, you see him, like, kind of flirt with the Shirley MacLaine character, um, who's Fran uh, Kubelik. She's the elevator girl. Um, Bud is in love with her. Uh, but sort of like hesitant to ask her out and you find out that she's like rejected the advances of other men. Um, so Bud, like when he gets the promotion is given these two tickets to the music man and finally gets the nerve to ask her out and let's have a date. And then you find out that the guy that Sheldrake is having, or the woman that Sheldrake's having the affair with is Fran. Um, you know, he mistreats her. She ends up overdosing, which is really like a dark part of the movie kind of. Although there's still some slapstick in there, too. Um, in the end, you know, she realizes that Bud has, like, quit his job because he can't stand the fact that Sheldrake is, like, using this woman. Um, and they end up, like, together. Although it's not really confirmed whether she loves him still, but I think she finds him to be, like, the better option than the scumbag, like, cheater who right. was only with her because his wife... At that point, because his wife kicked him out. So. Why it's a comedy? Um, it's 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 got some pretty funny moments. Like it's got some moments that make you laugh. Um, I think that in the lens of the modern era, it becomes a little more like cringy because it's about a bunch of men like using their power to take advantage of young girls who either don't know any better or who are also trying to like advance 
um, at the expense of their families. Um, you really feel bad for Bud throughout the majority of the movie mm-hmm. because he genuinely is a nice guy that's willing to like make himself look bad to protect these terrible men. Um, but there's a lot of like, The whole first part of the movie until it's revealed that uh, Fran Kublik is the the other woman with Sheldrake. There's some some pretty funny moments. Um, some slapstick stuff with like the men bringing the women back to the apartment. Um, when he's sick and he's like, you know, he's got his nose drops and he's like really nervous because he thinks Sheldrake's about to like have him arrested or fired. Yeah, it's good scene. And he like, ah, and like yeah. squirts the nose drops and they shoot across the room. Uh-huh. And, yeah. You know, I mean, Jen- and a little bit of that Wilder let Lemon do on his own and improvise where Wilder wasn't big at all on improvisation. And, but, um, he trusted Lemon enough like to do some I mean, of that stuff. Le- Lemon's an amazing actor. Sure. This is like yeah. young Lemon, like coming into his prime. Yeah. Um, I think you're supposed to laugh <laughs> Maybe that's not the best way to sell it as a comedy. Um, I think you're supposed to laugh at like some of the stuff during the overdose, like the way that he reacts to things and him using like the tennis racket as a spaghetti strainer. Sure, sure. And then it becomes like kind of heartwarming, you know, like as you see him because he's obviously in love with Fran. So when Fran overdoses, it's in his apartment. Yeah. She tries to kill herself because Sheldrake has gone back to his wife for Christmas, and you know Bud comes and finds her and like rescues her basically. Um, but even once she wakes up, Frank, it's like there's not comedy there. Like they play it a little bit, like it's a little slapsticky, like at times, like yeah. with his behavior. But it's like it's a lot of it's just hard to watch because yeah, it's really he's sad. trying to keep her from calling her family because he's still trying to protect Sheldrake. Sheldrake well, because he's so like. He's, he's so whipped by like all these like powerful men. I get it. It's just, and that's actually like one of that that's maybe my favorite scene in the movie when Sheldrake's like bullying him, basically threatening his job with like, come on, give me the key to the apartment one more time. And he gives him a key, but it's to the executive washroom because he's quitting his job. Um Really, it's kind of like an extended episode of Mad Men, I guess. It, it, no, that's exactly what I thought when I was watching this, is that like, yeah, it's like Mad Men, you know, it's the world that I know of Mad Men, really, like, you know, like, many years before, because I haven't seen this movie in over 20 years. Um, It's the first time I've seen it, like, since I was probably in my teens. And I don't think I was probably fully capable of understanding all the complexities of it. I mean, it's a pretty dark comedy at times, but there's... That's what I said, is, like, if it's a comedy, it's the blackest comedy. Right, it is. Besides his slapstick, like, which seems kind of... Almost like it doesn't fit at times. It like doesn't in, 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 in the tone of right. the movie. Um, I don't it's know. a good movie. I, I, it's a good movie. Don't get me wrong. I just question whether the the idea that it's a romantic comedy and having it listed that way, like, is is it's a it's, it's a romance story. There's I'll give it that. the moments of comedy, especially after midway through the second act and into the third act, are always juxtaposed against something that's pretty depressing so like when he's in his office and he's got the bowler hat and he's like yeah. it's the junior executive and he's mm-hmm. what if i wear it this way right. do you think that people will notice like is this right. is this too jaunty for this office like should i just yeah. straighten it up and then like she gets all upset because she's realized that sheldrake has like done when he's done with her like numerous times right with other women throughout the office you know i mean it's 
he like you know Bud doesn't realize that that's what's happening, but she does, and it's like there's the comedy, you know, of like the misunderstanding, whatever that leads to the comedy. But it's really depressing on her part. Like it's very sad for her. Yeah. I mean, she has like no comedy in this whatsoever. Like everything was a little her bit is... early. Like the the snappy dialogue when in she's the, in the elevator right. and some of that stuff. But you know, um, up until she asks him on the most up, up until he asks her on the date for the first time before she goes to meet with Sheldrake, it's pretty um, it's pretty dire, friend. This is a dire is. move. It is. Um. It's interesting because it's so. I I actually like I I watched this today. This was the last one mm-hmm. I had to watch like to rewatch in preparation for this list. Um, if you would have asked me last week what year this movie was made, I would have told you, like, 1946, 1947. Hmm. Yeah. Um, this is a movie that's 1960. And I think... So I think it's black and white, and I think it's filmed the way it's filmed because it's meant to evoke that era. Like, the early 50, late yeah. 40s, early 50s era of Hollywood mm-hmm. films. And I think the reason that it's done like that is I, I really think it's a pretty dark look at, like, male power in the workplace and the way that men treat women and yeah billy wilder from my research on this was definitely basing a lot of this off of stories he had heard in hollywood that were happening yeah you know and um especially the idea of the apartment you know um and stories he had heard over the years or had been somehow well, like about, um, he, people he knew intimately that had been involved with this these kind of things think about like, space like Chinatown where they have like the love nest and stuff like that sure. I mean that's a pretty common yes yeah, it is yeah. where the man like yeah. the executive but man, like apparently wrote these characters in some ways like based, like, based on, on some of the stories he had heard and like you know very specific scenes and stuff so I, I laughed watching it today like maybe four times in mm-hmm. the movie like actually like ah like laughed right um two of my favorite performances of all time from lemon and from um shirley mclean yeah um i next there's like a a small number of women from like this time period that i like love in every movie they're in and shirley mclean is one of those one of those actresses that like I think she's an amazing actress i think she's a really powerful actress i think she's incredibly beautiful to watch like on screen um, I think there's a large amount of like broken humanity to her performance here that's really yeah. compelling where when he's trying to even sort of like ignore that she tried to kill herself even though he's doing his best to protect her from trying it again and he's so you can tell he's so afraid that she's going to like when he's trying to play gin rummy with her and he's trying to keep her engaged I mean that's it's a really heartfelt and beautiful scene where she's obviously like broken and tired and dejected but still that crazy glimmer that well maybe he will leave his wife yeah because she's genuinely yeah. like thinks she's in love with sheldrake yeah. um it's hard to watch yeah i mean there's a lot of depressing stuff in it but at least at the end you know there's no yeah, yeah yeah no sure i mean it has like the trappings of a romantic comedy especially in that romance department i'm just saying that like the comedy is like maybe that first half hour with like the the setup before he finds out right. she's a mistress and his physical comedy, um, that's the comedy of this, and it's like it's it's really relegated to the first like forced forty minutes total, to me, and then, um, but uh, I also think that like there like it takes this movie a half hour to get going. It's my one criticism of it really is that I think like the build could have been done a little bit 
quicker, like, especially the stuff of him trying to like show that he's so impressive too. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, his bosses and stuff like that. I understand what you're saying, but I think that all that stuff is important because I think it yeah. builds him as like. I think it, I I think it lets you get to know him before you even ever introduce the romantic element to yeah. it. Yeah. Um, you might be right. It, it's weird. So I don't know if you're even gonna like. Know but I don't feel for him. I don't. Oh, bud. Not really. No, I feel bad for Bud. I feel bad for him from the business aspect. I don't feel bad for him for letting the, himself I, getting taken advantage of, or yeah, like you know, I mean, and and like the idea that it's like he's supposedly really into this person, right. and he's going to still protect Sheldrake as much as he does in the middle of that movie. Like, do you know yeah. what it is though? And here's here's the reason why, like, I feel bad for him. Like, yeah. why is it? I feel bad for her. It's that little thing where after she tries to kill herself, he's talking to her about how he tried to kill himself and he shot himself in the knee because the cops scared him when he was out at the lake. And it was because he was in love with his brother's wife Uh and he knew that she was never going to leave, that she would would always love his brother more than him and she would never leave his brother. So he figured he would end it. So to me, it's like, number one, he really thinks... That she loves Sheldrake. Mm-hmm. Like, he's convinced that she loves him. And he loves her so much that he doesn't want to, like, get in the way of who she loves. Mm-hmm. And he's come to New York to throw himself into something so he never has to think about the woman in Cincinnati again. Except for when she sends him the fruitcake every year. Which is why, like, he says, it's just, like, one line, like... Mm-hmm. That he took all these extra classes to become like a master accountant or something, I think is Mm -hmm. what he says. And he works the extra hours every night, not because like he wants to, but because he really has nothing else to do. Like he's eating at an automat, you know what I mean? Like he doesn't have anything in his life. Sure. And I think the only reason he's protecting these people is because they're the only people that provide any kind of human companionship to him. Which again, like I'm not really making it sound like a fun movie to watch, but... Because it's not a comedy, right? Um, <clears throat> this got me so good. Uh, Mary and uh, Johansson uh, of the website The Flick of Philosopher um, goes a little further than me about like sim- having sympathy for characters. Um, she says it's impossible to feel sympathy for any of the apartment's characters. The execs manipulate their girlfriends, their wives, and Bud. Fran is fool enough to believe Jeff's constantly put off promises to divorce his wife and Bud is a sycophantic little weasel which would be fine if he were the objects of wilder satire but Bud's the hero um why can't I ever fall in love with love with someone nice like you Fran moans to Bud this nice in quotation marks man is a bore eager to share his font of useless facts and figures such as the average number of colds New Yorkers get each year. This nice man looks up Fran's group insurance card at the office so he knows everything about her down to her appendix scar, um, which uh, would be also be called stalking, she puts in parentheses. This nice man doesn't dissuade his neighbor's belief that he's the one squeaking the bed springs with a different dame every night. He'd like to be seen as that kind of man. This nice guy can't say the one little word that would save him from all of the world of trouble that he's in. No. It's movies like The Apartment that make men think that the nice guy equals doormat. Newsflash, women don't find uh, a milk toast who can't assert himself or make better conversation of flu trivia where inappropriate explanations I love you, Miss Kublik. 
any more appealing than one who enjoys punching women or whose favorite expression is give me another beer. There are two kinds of men in the apartment, the cad and the nice guy. Many men seem to believe that applies to the real world, too. If women don't want a jerk, they want a doormat. Taint so. So this is a this is a modern review, right? It's in the past uh, ten years. All right. So no offense to this woman, but yeah. she's dumb and doesn't understand this movie. Okay. Yeah. Um, he doesn't want his neighbors to think that he's the one creaking the bed springs. He's appalled by the fact that he has to take ownership of those things. Like he never wants to do it. He does it because number one, he doesn't want to lose his job. And number two, he doesn't want to lose his apartment when people find out that he's, like, renting it as a bordello, right? Like, he's afraid of anyone ever finding out what actually happens there, which is so ridiculous that, like, who has never seen, like, these strangers go into his house with as much as, like, his neighbor, doctor, and his wife are, like, outside, like, walking around, like, that they haven't seen this. Yeah. He's not... I mean, she, you know, the one thing she says is that she's right, like... Why can't I ever find a nice guy like you? And he is a milk toast. But it, she has no interest in him until he does say no. Like, it's when he... that That's the moral of Bud, is that when he stands up for himself is when he finally is able to be seen as, like, an object of possible affection by this woman. Yeah, I mean, it's like... When he stops being... Right, the lesson yeah. of the movie, for whatever it is, is the idea of, like... When he stops being a doormat, he becomes a viable option. Look, I mean, Bud is a creep that, like, he looked up her oh, insurance absolutely. card to find out absolutely. stuff about. But that's no different than anybody, a man or woman, that goes on somebody's Facebook page when they like them and scrolls through, like, four years of, like, posts or whatever. I mean, uh-huh. I've seen people, like, a couple weeks ago, I saw some dude like some picture that a girl posted, like, five years ago. And I thought, like, holy shit, buddy. Like, you're being awful bold about this. <laughs> Right. But, I mean, like, it's the same thing, right? Right. And it's just because he's a lonely man who's lost what he feels is his one love of his life at this point, who's thrown himself into this job and is just trying to find a way to make the best of it by not being involved in anything, you know? And, I mean, right, like, he's, he's not an admirable character for most of that time, but he's protecting people because he doesn't know what else to do. Right. Like, and he's protect. he thinks he's protecting himself. And it's at the point where he realizes none of this is right. And I can't like be a party to this woman, like dealing with this cat anymore. Like if she's going to do it, she's going to do it, but it's not going to be me that lets it happen. And he's just willing to throw it all away and move somewhere else. Like that's when he becomes like a hero sort of. Maybe not a hero, but at least, like, a somewhat admirable person. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, like, she understands the beats of what's happening and doesn't understand the context they're happening in. Like, that's a really bad review. Well, I think it certainly has a viewpoint that is being taken into watching it and is probably confirmed when you watch it that way. (laughs) Maybe. I hate reviews like that, though. Like, man, just, like, watch the movie. If you don't understand it, like, ask somebody or something. I don't know. I mean, I, it's not a, look, I completely understand how, from a modern perspective, you know, you could watch The Apartment and find it kind of cringy. Like, and it is it pretty is. cringy, right? Sure. And the, I, I, maybe I've seen this movie like four or five times, yeah. I think. Um, and it's, it, it's always uncomfortable. 
like yeah. every time you watch it. It's uncomfortable to think about these men yeah. bringing random women back to the right. sky's apartment. I mean, because it, it puts... Well, here's the thing is it actually addresses... It actually addresses a universal question. Is the individual individual culpable, you know, if they do and say nothing? Right, he's an accessory to it. Right, right. Well, I'm saying right, but it's but it's asking that question. Look, is if if you know something is is bad or is wrong, and you don't do anything about it, and you just let it go on, or you even like you know just kind of, you know, even if you know if you're that doormat, are you are you culpable you along with it? 100%. And and it's asking that question, and I think people find that uncomfortable a lot of times. But you know, it asks that question, and it gives you all the reasons why the answer is yes. Until the moment he says no, and that's the climax of the movie, right? right. Like, that's right. the moment that C.C. Bud Baxter becomes the hero of the movie when in his small way he says, I will no longer be a party to this, right? Mm-hmm. But then from another perspective, when you're talking about people that control his your... His ethics trump his, jo- his, right. his employment. When you're talking about people that control your livelihood and your livelihood is all you have... Like, there's plenty of people, I'm sure, in real life that have turned a blind eye to, like, bad situations because they were afraid that someone was going to fire them. And honestly, like... I mean, come on, seriously. None of these men... You've been in that position, I'm sure, at different points in your life. I know I have been. None of these men are committing crimes. They're just being immoral. Yes. Like, they're being bad people to the their wives different but, different jobs i've worked i've had to turn my eye to both right i mean uh, criminal and immoral like so i don't know i mean like, re- reviews like that it's just like you're right like i feel like there might be some kind of agenda behind it but even if yeah. there's not like it just it's it's a misinterpretation i mean i think that's, that's why this movie is so powerful is because it is universal in some ways like yeah. even if it's not the specific circumstances of the apartment which are not normal circumstances like, really, everybody can relate to it in some way, in some point in their life. Everybody has some kind of personal experience they could, right, could, I agree could place that. on this. Anyway, amazing performances, yeah, like, I agree. top to bottom. And I'm not just... familiar with Shirley MacLaine when she's younger, really, like, as much as I am when she's older. Yeah. Um, like, Steel Magnolia Shirley MacLaine is what I know more than younger Shirley MacLaine. But, yeah, she's really good in this. Yeah. yeah she's really good in, like, almost everything that she's in. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of, like, some other stuff that I can say. I mean, like, The Apartment, I think, was maybe the first thing I saw her in. Um, she's in Irma LaDouche, which I like a lot. Um, i trying to think. There's, like, a later movie where she plays a jewel thief, I think. Like, prior, prior to, like, being there or whatever. Gambit, right. maybe, or something like that that she's really good in. Um, I don't know. She just... I think when, when I was growing up, our opinion of Shirley MacLaine was she was, like, psychic network... Right. This is my right. like yeah. living my past life, Shirley sure, McLean. Sure. Yeah. But Shirley McLean is like a powerful actress sure. for like Absolutely. a long time Absolutely. and like a fantastic like presence on the screen. I yeah. I really love Shirley McLean a lot. Yeah. She's really good. Yeah. Any final thoughts on this? No, I mean again, like that. I I don't mean to call that woman dumb. I just think she doesn't understand what she's watching. But yeah. you know, it's it's going to be tough to watch in the modern era, like especially yeah. if you're at all sensitive to like the rights of other people and maybe like, I don't know, treating people like human beings, but it's fantastic performances. It's really well filmed. It's got that beautiful, like classic Hollywood look to it. Um, and for only taking place in a couple of different sets, it's like, it's a really powerful film. And I don't know, like 
you'll I, I think you can't watch this movie and not just really appreciate how fantastic Jack Lemmon and Shirley MacLaine are as actors. So yeah. Okay. Behind the scenes real quick, normally we actually stop between um, movies three and two. And I'm sure Frank feels the same way as that we're really looking forward to this break. I usually try to hide it and I'm not even going to hide it this time. Yeah. Is because my house is freezing. Um, because in order to cut out background noise, I have to shut off the vents. And we do not have um, the same heat that we normally have uh, because the cold has uh, like ravaged my property. Yeah, the polar um, vortex is definitely... And we're on the edge of the polar vortex. Right. Like, I can't imagine what it's like in Minnesota where it's like right. been, like negative 55 with wind chill. I talked to someone in HR the other day that's in Wisconsin where it was negative 50. Like, yeah. That's insane. Yeah. Like, that shouldn't exist on this planet. It's like I saw alone. something, who knows if it's real, but I saw something online where was like you know it was in Iowa or something like that. Um, it was like somebody had been posted post a picture of antifreeze antifreeze yeah, outside and I it was frozen. Like I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, and it it's is like, insane. Yeah, I mean, it it only got down to like negative two over here the other night with wind chill. Yeah, and then right. You know, it's just been the single digits. But yeah, if, it's if you're listening to this in the Midwest, God bless you. Yes. And <laughs> yeah. Good luck. Right. Yeah. We'll be back here shortly. Okay. Okay, everybody, we're back. Um, Slightly warmer than we were before. Slightly. Um, slightly. So, number two on your list, Frank, is uh, the 1980s pick, 1986, Pretty in Pink, directed by Howard Deutsch, Deutsch. Um, starring Molly Ringwald, Andrew McCarthy, John Cryer, and James Spader. Has a 78% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and an 81% from audiences. For those that aren't familiar with the movie, you want to explain the concept of the movie and uh, what you like about it so much. So, John Hughes written like teen dramedy, I guess. Um, Molly Ringwald is Andy Walsh. Uh, she's a high school senior um, from like the quote unquote wrong side of the tracks. Um, her father is menial laborer. They can't really hold down a job and is difficult for her to motivate. Um, she's this really talented fashion designer that gets made fun of by the richer kids in school. It's definitely like the haves versus have nots like exist in this universe. Um, her best friend is John Cryer's character, which is Ducky. He's, uh, earnest, but weird. I don't know. Like he looks like a ska, like a reject from a ska video. Um, she meets and falls in love with the Andrew McCarthy character, um, Blaine, who's part of like the rich group of people. Um, she also at one point rejects the um, James Spader character, who's the rich. I can't remember his name in the movie, um, but who's like Steph, who's like Blaine's best friend. Um, Blaine is not embarrassed by her, but Steph makes him feel bad about like being like attracted to her because she's poor. Um, they sort of break up because he kind of like basically tells her he has another date and he can't be seen with her. And um, she ends up going to prom by herself. That's the whole like, like the whole point is that, you know, she won't, she's going to prom with this Blaine guy. Um, but at prom, like, realizes that he's gone by himself and is just sat there alone and he's actually in love with her and they end up in the end. Um, it's pretty bare-bones synopsis of the movie. Um, really, number one, one of the one of my favorite soundtracks um, from this, this era. 
Yeah. Uh, particularly the psychedelic first song that, you know, like the film got the title from, The Pretty in Pink. Um, really great performance by Molly Ringwald. Um, probably, if not like the, like it actress of the 1980s for teen movies, like definitely one of like the top two or three. Um, her character is like likable and friendly and relatable and, um, Ducky, you know, the John Cryer character is really like really good comic relief, but you feel really bad for him a lot. Um, Steph and his girlfriend are like really good villains, um, in the sense that they're also like somewhat relatable, like to a point, but just terrible people. Um, it's just a really good, like well-paced movie. Um, really great performances. Hard really to talk a lot about. I mean, there's not a whole lot in terms of like the cinematography or anything like that, but just it's, it's really well written. The dialogue is very natural. Um, there's a bunch of really memorable scenes in it, uh, particularly like John Cryer lip syncing to Otis Redding in the record store where Molly Ringwald works. Um, it's interesting. So I, I watched this movie maybe last weekend or the weekend before um, with my son. And he was kind of almost, like, perplexed by the idea that there could be cliques in the school and that, like, people didn't just, like, hang out with who they wanted to hang out with and that something like the amount of money that you had or the clothes that you wear would, like, separate you into different groups. Which I find really odd because, like, you know, when I was growing up, that was a pretty large part of, like, my school career was, like, people who separated themselves into groups based on what they were not only what they were interested in but like what clothes they wore what music they listened to or what sports they played right and there was definitely like some antagonism between those different groups at times so when i watch pretty in pink it, it feels like i mean a stylized but more or less realistic look at like what high school was like and it's really interesting to me that somebody that's going through high school now you know who's finishing high school um, can watch the movie and it seems so alien to them that those things like can happen. So. I, I joked one night with Frankie and asked him, are you sure you're not just part of like the, the upper end of the clicks and just don't know that uh, any of this stuff exists? Right. Um, like he's, maybe. Just, he's just not aware that the kid's getting made fun of because right. like he's just nice right. to everybody. Right. Um, you know, some really, like, like I said, some really great performances in this movie. Um, I'm honestly like I'm I'm interested to hear criticism of it because so out of like these the the John Hughes Molly Ringwald movies you know you look at things or the John Hughes whatever like teen dramedy movies you know I I, I think Sixteen Candles is also a fantastic movie but I can see like maybe some kind of wonderful like there's some criticism of that I honestly I don't know like what criticism you would have of Pretty in Pink okay. so I'm I'm pretty interested to hear yeah. Um, you hit on pretty much all my points um, uh, of rewatching this, which um, soundtrack, Molly Greenwald's fantastic in this. Uh, Ducky is dancing to Otis Redding is like one of like, you know, one more charming scenes, I think, in like this entire movie, as goofy as it is. I really like the Ducky character a lot. Um, I also thought that it was really well paced in the sense that it did not get into, it stayed focused and didn't get into too many extraneous subplots. 
that I think a lot of movies like that are like this would get into and right. like weigh it down. It stays relatively focused with those four, really five, if you count Harry Dean Stanton, those five core characters. Um, you know, even the Annie Potts yeah, uh, subplot know. just kind of weaves in and out naturally. Right. Like, so everything feels like it's still moving and focused and you're not like, oh, now we're on this subplot, now we're on this. It's all just moves very clearly. It's, it's interesting because you get the impression that the Annie Potts character is maybe like the natural progression for um, Andy, you know, the Molly mm-hmm. Ringwald character. That's right. what she will become someday. Right. Is somebody that still is, is pretty fiercely independent and still has their own mm-hmm. style but has kind of like moved into a more traditional role in society. Right. Um, yeah. Harry, Harry Dean Stanton is really great in it. There's some really powerful scenes there. And like you said, like I agree, like everything that happens in the movie is in service to the overall plot. It's in service to move the plot forward. So even stuff like Ducky getting like beat up by the guys in the school, Yeah. you know, it shows why Ducky's so angry I mean, not, not only because he's in love with Molly Ringwald's sure. character, but also because he sees it as a betrayal of these people that have, you know, like, shit on them their whole lives. Mm-hmm. And now, like, she's, like, becoming, like, friendly right. with one of them. Yeah. And he just, he can't see how you could be friends with them. And Andrew McCarthy is fine in this movie. Like, you know, uh, we I was joking a little bit before the podcast started about Andrew McCarthy. But um, he, he's perfectly serviceable. He's charming, you know as charming as he needs to be in this movie to fulfill this role. Um, I don't think Andrew McCarthy, and I think time has shown this. He's not a great actor or anything like that. I've been telling you for a week now that like, I think like the perfection of Andrew McCarthy is now <laughs> Matt Bomer, um, both like in like looks and acting ability. Um, and I swear, if you like look at the two of them, it's like the way Andrew McCarthy acts. It's the exact same way Matt Bomer acts in like a lot of his roles. What's what's best Andrew McCarthy movie? Probably. What's what's the best Andrew McCarthy performance in a movie? Oh, go through those like three movies that he has in the eighties that are back to back. Saint Elmo's Fire, Pretty in Pink, Mannequin, Less Than Zero. Um, honestly, that's, that's pretty much just. Oh. Weekend of Bernie's, maybe, I guess. I don't know. Maybe Weekend of Bernie's. But, uh, <laughs> um, I mean, in that list of, like, movies that is, like, are okay. Like, right. you know, that he's, that they're, that are decent movies. And Weekend of Bernie's is on the lower end of that list. Um, probably this, but because he fulfills the function that he serves. It's like when he tries to go further than that. So, Mannequin, like, he's trying to play a little bit of like this guy who's a little bit out of his element and stuff like that. And I think when it gets there, some of the stuff like manic and stuff, like when he's like, doesn't know what's going on and he's, you know, just racing against time or he's confused. It's like some of that stuff works, but when he tries to get into any kind of deeper, um, emotion, yeah, he falls apart a lot of times, um, or comes off as forced. So probably this is his best role because he's, he fills it so well for what the character is, which is really kind of empty. Like, he's the rich guy who's also a nice guy. That's it. That's his character. You know? And Molly Ringwald's the star of this movie. Oh, 100%. Um, And she's phenomenal. And I have this question for you about this before we get into the reviews. What happened? To Molly Ringwald? Yes. Like, if she can be this good in this role, what the hell happened to her? 
Was it just typecasting, do you think? Like, she got, like, labeled as, like, almost this teen star, and then as she gets later into her 20s and 30s, like, they just stop casting her, really? I mean, here's a here's an actress that has, I think, three consecutive... I, I think they're all back-to-back. So she's got 16 Candles, Pretty in Pink, Breakfast Club, where she's fantastic in all three of those movies. But... In all honesty, like even though she's different characters in all three of those movies, they're pretty much the same. Yeah. Same. I don't want to say they're the same movie, but it's sort of the same. Like you think she's just perfecting the same elements, and it kind yeah, of shows and maybe there is some typecasting there. Um, I don't know. Like I can't think of anything beyond that where she's. I don't know. I mean, oh, maybe okay. maybe it is that. Maybe she wasn't offered any other roles. Maybe. Maybe she got burned out. I mean, I don't really know enough about Molly Ringwald to answer. She's definitely like the the epitome of the girl next door sure. in eighties like teen movies. Yeah. I think, especially. Yeah, I don't like, know if you knew exactly what happened there. I don't. Yeah. I mean, I can't think of anything I've seen her in. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Like in a long time. I think she's on like some kind of. Uh one of those like young teen shows like now that's on like a weird channel where she played a mom for a while oh she's on Riverdale she, oh she's she on there Riverdale. too now yeah. no I wasn't thinking of that actually it was a different show from a few years ago that she was on playing a mom but no she's in she, she's good in Riverdale is she mm-hmm. yeah um, that, that's that's a weird show but yeah. it's it's entertaining enough like and she does a good job I mean she's not in like a whole lot of it like a few episodes sure she's good when she's in it alright so you want to start off with some Dave Kersnark not a lot to respond to here, but we haven't had any Dave Kerr yet. So, um, Dave Kerr, the Chicago Reader, writes that by 1986, John Hughes had become an industry, farming out his formulated projects to hired hacks, in this case, Howard Deutsch. This is like every other Hughes film, just a little shoddier. It's set in an imaginary Chicago suburb populated by wealthy CEOs and unemployed steelworkers. The plot concerns a girl from the wrong side of the freeway who harbors a crush on the Richie Andrew McCarthy. He invites her to the prom, and but will his snooty friends accept her is the question. The class issues are posed with a fervency that makes you expect an additional dialogue credit for Karl Marx, but naturally <laughs> Hughes and Deutsch glide right over them as they close in on their fairy tale ending. <laughs> it's, it's a good line, that Karl Marx that's, line. That's I'm, I'm getting more appreciation for, for Dave Kerr all the time. <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, whatever. Like, I yeah. guess I... I that's, just, that's, just, that's just bitchiness to be bitchy, I think, on it, Dave Kerr's it, part. It, it is. It's still funny. Um, yeah, I mean, there's nothing to respond to there. Like, right? Yeah, yeah, right. Okay, so get into some slightly more serious stuff. So, Paul Atanasio of the Washington Post, um, he has a couple different things. Like, he thinks John Cryer's completely over the top um, in the role. Um, he thinks that Harry Dean Stanton's misused as a, quote, domestic Yoda um in the movie huh. and that he's playing against type not to a good effect um what is what is Harry Dean Stanton's type um if he's playing against type what is the type he's playing against right but the, he's just basically like that's him it's the same yeah. character yeah. um so huh. he goes on to say in his obsession with the clear soul years, Hughes isn't just painting by the numbers. He's painting himself into a corner. 
Ultimately, there's something narcissistic about movies like Pretty in Pink. They're not created to bring you into others' lives. They're created so teenagers can point at the screen and say, look at me. Unless there's something singularly interesting about the teen experience, and use never establishes that there is, movies about these years remain for teenagers a form of communal navel-gazing, and for the rest of us, a reminder of something we'd rather forget and generally have forgotten. So isn't that kind of the point, though, right? Like, I mean, I think he gets the point, he just doesn't like it. Yes. Like, that it... I, it it's been a long time since I've been a teenager, mind mm-hmm. you. Um, but I, I think it's a pretty accurate portrayal of like, at least when we were growing up, what being a teenager was like. And I think that there's nothing wrong. Like, why does it have to be anything more than that? You know, like, I don't understand why, I don't understand where it falls short. And I know that like Hughes did so many movies in such a short period of time that again, like are basically the same thing over and over, but there's a definite feeling of realism to it even though it's like a fantastical realism in some ways because it's like stylized and you know John Cryer is over the top but there's a reason for it in the context of the movie it's because he's obsessed with this girl and consistently trying to one-up himself because he doesn't understand that you know it's not the loudest guy in the room that gets the girl or the most like crazy guy it's you know the boring handsome guy that just shows her like genuine affection without embarrassing her or setting off the alarm in her store or whatever i don't know like i just it, it's an interesting critique because i think it completely sells short the fact of how effective john hughes is, is showing the teenage experience and i don't know that there's anything wrong with a movie that's about you know being a teenager Okay, so Siskel, uh, Gene Siskel, Chicago Tribune, he gives you a little bit more credit than Antanasio does, um, but still has a problem with this movie to some degree. Uh, he says, so what we have here is a much less radical movie than writers John Hughes probably believes he has created. Yes, he's given us an individualistic girl, but she swoons like a robot at the first reasonably human wasp and that asks her for a date. Pretty in Pink marks a second disappointment in a row from Hughes following his even worse script of weird science. What happened to him? Here was a man who seemed to be more in touch with real teenagers than any writer in Hollywood. Uh, And he uh, lists specifically 16 Candles in the Breakfast Club. Um, But that magic is missing here. And by turning over the direction to Pretty in Pink to video maker and first time director Howard Deutsch, Hughes hasn't helped his cause. Deutsch has no discernible style. The scenes march ahead with only one development per scene, much like the worst in American television today. <clears throat> so I guess there's two different criticisms that he thinks he uses, starting to show that he's out of touch in some ways with the American teen, and also that Deutsch um, isn't really stylistically up to the challenge, it seems. I mean, it's a competently directed film. I agree. It's actually, it's interesting because... Um, Tak Fujimoto is the cinematographer of this movie. Mm-hmm. He did some pretty amazing stuff. I don't know. I mean, I don't. I think it's. I, I think I, uh, we've been using that word a lot recently anymore. Is competent, but it's like, um, no. I think it's competent. I, I agree in the sense that I don't think there's anything particularly interesting about the direction of the movie. I think the strength is in 
the feeling that you get from the characters and the way those characters are portrayed. So here's here's my I don't know, I guess like response to that. Sometimes you need a director who makes the movie their movie. And it's about when you watch a Martin Scorsese movie, you can tell you're watching a Martin Scorsese movie. And he and I just picked him whatever sure. random. But I mean like that's someone where he's an auteur, you know. I mean that's like that's a master filmmaker. So when you watch his movies, you feel it 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 envelops you in the world of that movie. It's not just about the characters, it's about everything. And it's the way he films it and the way he presents things, right? But sometimes a movie is just about the plot and the characters in it. And in that times, like, you don't want the filmmaking to overshadow what actually matters. And in this movie, what matters is Molly Ringwald, John Cryer, Andrew McCarthy, Henry Dean Stanton. I mean, it really is. It really is Molly Ringwald's movie, and it's about her performance. And you don't need the direction to. I don't want it to intrude. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like sometimes unobtrusive, competent direction is exactly what a movie needs to be effective. And there's nothing wrong with that. No, and and the, and, the, and the film is shot very classically. Right. I mean, it's a lot of medium shots of the two characters that are in the scene together. Um, and a lot of close-ups, you know, right. which is common in romantic comedies, like, dating back to the 40s. I mean, there's tons of close-ups in The Lady Eve. I mean, like, you know, so medium shot close-up are your two primary shots, like, you know, in these movies. Um, I would think if, I, if I'm if i trying to channel a little bit of, like, where I think Siskel's probably saying that there's, um, you know, the scenes just march ahead is that there's, it's just talky in those scenes even if the talking is interesting that it's like you know you think about like what happens you know in movies like where like really great movies like where it's like things are happening in the scene besides just the talking and you know you know people are in a different set like a kitchen talking and it's like you see like you know someone like you know making dinner while they're talking and it's like you know the way that they're making dinner reflects the emotions they're feeling during that conversation or something like that and it's like the scenes are are a little stale to some degree in terms of their maison song and like you know those kind of things of what's happening it's really just a lot of people just sitting across from each other talking which i think can work great and i think a lot of times it does work great in here but it's like, it does seem like it's just kind of, okay, that happened in that scene, that's been revealed, that's been talked about, like, you know, now let's go on to the next plot. And there's not a really interesting, it doesn't have to be different film angles or anything like that. It's just like, is there anything going on in the scene besides these two people talking? Like, and it's like, okay, here they're like sitting next to each other and there they're across from a desk. And, you know, so we can keep getting this, these medium shots, close-ups of people talking in just a different setting. And nothing's happening with that setting whatsoever. I don't... I, I, I disagree with you. Mm. I think there's, like, plenty of, like, second business that's happening in this movie. So, there's always, like... They're flipping through records. Or she's designing a dress. Or she's making breakfast for her dad. And making coffee for him and like consistently trying to get him up. I mean, you know what? That 
that's a good scene that you mentioned. You know how she's like moving around the room while they're talking in the beginning of that right. movie with her father? That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. You think about how often that actually does happen, though, in this movie. It's like, it's actually, it's a really good establishing scene in that movie where she's like moving around and you can see like her doing all these little domestic activities because she has to take care of her father. And it's like, you know, she's on him about getting a job and stuff like that. So they're revealing plot, like he's been out of work, all these other things. Right. But you also see how it says a lot about her character in the sense of like how responsible she is, you know, and that like, you know, the, the, the roles are reversed in the household, like because he's down and out and she kind of takes care of him. And it, like it says all these things by just her moving around the room and flitting around and trying to like clean up and open windows and like, you know, blinds and all these other things where I think that doesn't quite happen that much. Okay. In a lot of these so things. here's another scene where that happens. Yeah. So when Andrew McCarthy first comes into the record store and is flirting with her mm-hmm. and eventually asks her out. Right. Ducky sets off the alarm in the back of the store yeah. and she has to rush to the back to turn off the alarm. Mm-hmm. And he's standing there completely even though like he supposedly is in love with this woman completely like he like he won't help her he's just standing there with his hands in his pockets basically like running his mouth Mm -hmm. and she's digging through the desk drawers and Mm -hmm. she's like like scrambling around because not only as part of her job like she has to like turn this alarm off but the guy that she's into you know that's finally shown her attention is out there like getting away Mm -hmm. and there's it's a really good depiction of number one, how no matter how independent she seems, how eager she is to like find like this guy that like will love her mm-hmm. and how, even though like he claims that he's like the guy that does love her, he's completely tone deaf to what she actually cares about her needs mm-hmm. because he just is, cause to him Agreed. it's a joke. And then he just does it again before he leaves. And it's a lot of like small things that happen there that tell you without them actually saying it because she hasn't revealed to him yet that she's been talking to this guy that tell you everything you need to know about like what those characters agreed are. And, and it is very similar to that first scene right like, agreed and i think you can probably find good five six scenes that they do that kind of stuff in this movie but i also think there's a lot of scenes where it's just like Blaine and James Spader are in an office and, you know, other than James Spader standing up at one point, like they're talking across each other from a desk. Ducky and Harry Dean Stanton are in lawn chairs in a medium shot, like, you know, talking to one another without any, like, real, like, movement. And it moves from medium to close to close to medium. And I just think there's a lot of that kind of stuff. You know, they're outside talking, Blaine and uh, Molly Ringwald, and it's like... You know, it's kind of like this close up on the two of their faces and then moving between that and medium and close and close of each of their faces individually um, as they kind of like flirt outside, like in the schoolyard. I I think there's a lot of that kind of stuff. And that's what I think Siskel's trying to point out is that like there's just like a lack of energy to some of those scenes sometimes from the way that he films them. Maybe. And I, don't know. I guess I, and I think care. he's going further than I would go with it when he's saying that there's no discernible style. I think there is at times, but I do think that he falls into patterns of like repetition of like different types of setups in his camera work. If I was being critical, I mean, this dude, like Howard Deutsch is, uh, and I think really what Siskel's saying is probably you should have directed this. Well, probably. I mean, this is his first movie. Sure. And then he, like he, he's directed like mostly comedies, a lot of television, you know I mean? He's not like, again, serviceable and competent is how I would describe the direction. I would never argue that this is like 
from a direct, directorial standpoint like a masterpiece. But I think the I think the direction, the scene composition, I think it serves to move the characters forward, as opposed to being like, I don't know, like breathtaking or interesting. Agreed, or, and that's why I think it works ultimately is yeah. because it does what it's supposed to do. Um, I and never, also, th- I like, never thought I would be like. I'm not even defending Cisco. I'm just he doesn't give a lot of details, so I'm trying to kind of divine what he's getting at and I think I understand it. Like, I mean, it, so it's interesting that he brings a Breakfast Club, right? Because mm-hmm. Breakfast Club basically takes place in one setting. Like, it's just one room that that movie's filmed in. Mm-hmm. And there's plenty of times where Hughes makes it like, so when they do like the, I don't even know what you call it, like the hunk of chunk of conga line, like, mm-hmm. you know, when they're walking, yeah. like, that's ridiculous and silly. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways, like, and I love Breakfast Club, don't get me wrong, yeah. but things like that pull me out of the movie because it seems more like contrived you know and i don't feel like anything in pretty in pink is contrived right like even like ducky's like lip syncing thing is just an extension of his character you know it's not like a contrived set piece and i feel like those kind of things and maybe that's just a difference in opinion between me and me and siskel but i think that's much more detrimental to the overall flow of a movie than having two people sit across from each other mm-hmm. and talk like that because that just happens sometimes. Yeah, I mean, thinking of uh, Breakfast Club, it's like I I kind of see there are some differences. Like you know, like the some of it's like the way characters are positioned in the Breakfast Club is more interesting than they ever positioned like in sure. this movie. Well, it's a like, great movie. Yeah, right. Um, I mean, I'm not arguing. I'm not saying that it's directed poorly because I yeah. think like anything where you have like basically one setting is going to be difficult to make interesting. Yeah. I mean, that's why, like, My Dinner with Andre is such a great movie, because it's basically just, like, two men having a conversation, but it sure. still is, like, dynamic and stuff. It is. And well, I'm not going... Well, because the conversation and the actors are dynamic. Right, and I'm not, like, elevating Pretty in Pink to, like, <laughs> that level, but I'm saying that, you know, sometimes it's okay just to be serviceable. Sure. Right? No, I agree. Yeah. So... I was just I trying to, yeah. I, I don't, I don't care for Cisco at all. Like I'm, I'm usually not a fan of his reviews because I think he's bitchy. But um, it's weird because sometimes me and Cisco are like 100 percent on the same wavelength. Yeah. And sometimes it's just like I think like man, like what are you, like what are you seeing in this movie? Like you right. weirdo. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I, I I I generally don't agree with him a lot of times. I found I I, I tend to agree and I don't agree with Ebert all the time, but I tend to agree with Ebert more it seems. Uh, overall, any final thoughts about this? No, I mean, you know, if you've probably seen Pretty Pretty in Pink. Um, I think most people from our generation grew up with these movies in a lot of ways. Um, younger people, maybe not so much, but they're definitely worth watching. It's um, especially just for the performances and the soundtrack. Like, soundtrack is brilliant. Yes. Um, I will always, like like mark out to an 80s soundtrack so Mm -hmm. maybe that's just a weakness of mine but i think it's still i I think it's still eminently watchable i think it still holds up over Mm -hmm. you know almost 30 years now yeah well i guess yeah over 30 years now um since its release and you know it's a fun movie it's it's a heartwarming movie at times and just really like amazing performance by molly ringwald so okay so number one on your list is 1971's Harold and Maul, directed by Hal Ashby, starring the principals Bud Cord and Ruth Gordon. Uh, it is 84% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics, uh, 93% from audiences on Rotten Tomatoes. 
for people who haven't seen this, do you want to tell them a little bit about the plot and what you love about this movie so much? So, Bud Court plays Harold, um, titular character, who is obsessed with death and devoted to miming his own suicide um, to the chagrin of his wealthy mother, played by Vivian Pickles. Um, you know, he mimes, like, hanging himself. He mimes, like, cutting his wrists in the bathtub. Um, drowning in the pool. Uh, she's exasperated because she wants him to, like, be mature and be a man. Um, has this series of, like, events where she tries to set him up with, like, socialites and young women. Um, to try and get him to, like, get married and, like, make something of himself. And he just embarrasses her every time. Um, really, really funny scenes with him. Like, basically, like, stabbing himself or shooting himself with a mock... Like, mock shooting himself with a gun. Lighting, him on fu- lighting himself on fire. Lighting himself on fire, point, right. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, um, it's, it's some really funny stuff. The seppuku scene's really funny. Like Only yeah. uh, made more so by the fact that the young girl that's, like, there with him... Who yes. fancies herself an actress, like, then... And real like, and realizes he's faking, right? You know, does, and then and does Romeo and Juliet? Yeah, yeah, does the worst reading of like right. the Juliet death scene ever? Yeah. Um. So Harold eventually meets Harold goes to funerals of people he doesn't know, um, because he's fascinated with like you know those final moments of before someone goes in the ground, and meets Maud, who's a seventy some year old, seventy nine year old woman, um who steals cars and who's brash and loud and just lives life to the fullest. Uh, Harold is very reserved and like almost like shrinks from life and from experience. Um, Maud eventually brings Harold out and Harold falls in love with Maud despite their like huge age gap. Um, They break the law together, which Harold seems like blissfully unaware that that's actually occurring. Or maybe doesn't care because he's so, like, enamored with the fact that she loves life. <clears throat> she gets him out of having to go into the army. Another, some other, like, really hilarious scenes with his uh, his uncle, who's a Nixon-supporting general in the, ar- in the army that everyone in Washington hates, apparently. Um, eventually comes to the idea that he's going to propose to Maude that he wants to marry her. On the eve of her 80th birthday, when she reveals that she's basically poisoned herself and is about to die. Um, He tries to save her life, but she ends up passing away. Um, And in the end, you know, he's kind of, like, freed from his obsession with death and ready to live life because he met this woman that kind of, like, sparked his soul and gave him, like, a reason to go on. And he realizes there's some great things that can happen in life. Um, Great soundtrack, Cat Stevens. Um, that's used like it's Cat Stevens songs throughout it and you know used like within the context of the movie that people are actually singing their songs at points um, really good direction some really really funny stuff um, fantastic performance by Ruth Gordon uh, really weird but good performance by Bud Court mm-hmm. um, I like Vivian Pickles a lot in this movie too she's, like yeah, the long yeah. long suffering mother mm-hmm. who at times is just like so nonplussed by her son that she just ignores it and then mm-hmm. other times is like yeah obviously exasperated I mean she's like a pretty young woman too yeah um you know and and trying to maintain this air of like nobility almost because you can tell they're super wealthy um with her son who's just like a lunatic Mm um really good movie um really good direction by Hal Ashby I think um weird in today's context in the sense of like how certain things work like especially with like the police and stuff 
where, I don't know, like you can just tell it's a different time in the early 70s, but I, don't know, I think it's got a really good message. Um, it's not overly long. It moves along in like a pretty fast clip. Mm-hmm. Um, it never lets itself like drag down into being like maudlin or overly sentimental or overly dark, even though like the subject matter is pretty dark at times with, you know, Harold being like obsessed with like dying, mm-hmm. you know, but Ruth, who's this pot smoking nude model posing like hippie like brings him out of that and like makes him grow up basically and it's um i don't know it's just it's it's really good um <coughs> the cat stevens sound if, if 80 soundtracks are like like your kind of like thing like you know that you're a sucker for um I think I'm a sucker for anything that uses Cat Stevens um, in any way in a movie. And the fact that, like, pretty much the entire soundtrack is Cat Stevens songs. Um, Like, I think it works really well. Um, Okay, so watching this, I probably, it's probably been about, like, 15 years since I've seen this. Okay. Um, So I watched it recently, more recently than I have some of these other movies. Um, and I think it's kind of on record at some point, like how I feel about what I call white people movies. Okay. Like I think it's some right. We were talking about the squid this. and the whale at some point. Yes, yeah. right. Um, That's like your go-to criticism of white that people. in Garden State. Right. Like even right. though I really like Garden State, like you know, um, maybe more so at the time than now. I don't know, but I haven't seen the whole time. Well, but okay. So, um, so yeah, I, I have this thing like where I don't like white people movies, like and only because they're so derivative of one another and so like to me in my mind and this is another movie that i like is like the the grandfather of white people movies is the graduate okay to me in my mind um like that's like kind of like really where that you start to see that like a lot it's like i kind of view this as like um almost like the like the great uncle of white people movies um like in that regard and and I and I think the pool scene where he's like pretending to be dead in the pool has to be like to some degree a, a reference to the graduate in some way. I think so. Um, so at least like a slight homage. Sure, yeah. sure. Um, okay, so despite that, like, there's a point where I like these movies, like early on, like those that 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 first generation of what I call white people movies of like you know here's the poor middle class or upper middle class kid in this case it's more than upper middle class i think yeah um like i can still get behind but that's the pattern is like okay like something they're they're not happy with their life in some way and maybe it's real or maybe it's like you know perception whatever that is and they have to go through this journey to you know somehow solve the psychological dilemma of their life and I just find that trajectory, especially in the early to mid two thousands, becomes just overwrought and overdone. As like I don't want to see it anymore. Uh, it's so. But this movie, I really <coughs> like those that first generation though. Like so, I, I just want to say get that on the record. Is the first generation of these movies I like. Like it's 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 when it gets into like the second and third generation where I start having problems, especially the third generation, I would say, that right. early 2000s era. So I want to get that out of the way. Is like, you know, even though I find the similarities to be there between those things, this is done with such a style that, and it's so, it has the quirkiness and offbeat humor that you would see in some of those early 2000s movies. 
but it's done in such a in such a somber and well, emotional it's way. It's extreme, like in a lot of ways. Yes. in the way that it's yeah. done. That's 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 how Ashby. I mean, yeah, that's just the way that he, sure. he directs. And but. Bud Court in this movie, Harold, he's not whining. Like I think that's one of the big things. The differences I see in the in the generations of those type of movies is that everybody's like just this. Uh, Harold's not necessarily a sad sack. He's he's benignly resigned. Right is the way where that, where everybody's a sad sack in those two thousand right. movies. Well, yeah. So I I would like to redefine white people movies. <laughs> um, I would call them privileged on we movies. Uh huh. Basically, it's yeah. it's people who have lived a life of general comfort yeah. that still can't find. They're Billy Joel movies, basically. It's like a person. Uh, I was oh, John Irving. John Irving. Right. They're John. They're 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 like John Irving. Novels. Privileged. Privileged only. It's yeah, like I've right. I have all these creature comforts, but I still can't find yeah. like peace. Right. I can't find yeah. my meaning. Right. Which I think you know happens. I'm respected. I have money, and I still like I'm not happy. Right. And I think from the perspective of like people that don't have money, is join like, the club. Like, well, okay. Like maybe you should just be happy that right. you're like taken care of. Sure. But. I don't really... He doesn't view himself in that way. So, no, he doesn't. You know, he's someone who's, whose father passed away when he was relatively young, who's kind of like an afterthought to his mom because she's so involved in her own, you know, talking to Jean or whatever on the phone about, like, where she's her next meeting is or her next party. And he is, like, he's he's almost, like, beatific or, like, re, he's just resigned. But his resignation isn't because he's not interested in life it's because he doesn't understand how to live it mm-hmm. which is why he's so obsessed with death and it's like he's not obsessed with death because he genuinely wants to die he's obsessed with death because he's trying to force something out of himself like he's trying mm-hmm. to bring himself to some moment of crisis and by like continuously staging his death he's trying to get that reaction or that moment and it just continuously falls short and it's not until he finds somebody who's completely in love with life mm-hmm. that he's able to realize like what it means to live and and, and is in to some degree in love with him oh yeah she loves him but i think that's one of the things he's trying to get out of his mother probably is some reaction because she doesn't offer him other than criticism and you know she doesn't really offer much reaction it's like i think there's some feeling from him that his mother doesn't love him i i think <clears throat> i think she doesn't know how to love him because he's so weird yeah and because you have a, I think you have a much better view of his mother, like, or at least not as a critical of view as I have of her, because I think because, she's despicable. So I don't find her despicable. I just find her misguided, and I think mm. that, I think she's a woman who, she was a socialite, and mm. her husband was this. What, what do they say he is? He's like a doctor or a surgeon or something. I something think, or a psychiatrist, psychologist. Mm. He's this brilliant man that did these crazy things and they had these adventures in Paris where he floated naked down the Seine or whatever, you know? And they had this child and she, it feels like she wasn't ready to have a child and she doesn't know how Mm -hmm. to be a mom. And then he died. So she had no support whatsoever. And she wants him, like, she wants him to become 
her very very narrow definition of what a man is. Right, because she doesn't understand anything else. And it's either like you're going to get married and you're going to go into business or you're going to go into the military and you'll become something. It was because she has no else to react to it. Like, I just think this guy is being very kind to her. Like, I mean, I, like, and that's not a criticism of you. That's just, you know, I think... Because she doesn't ever really attack yeah. him. She doesn't ever really, like... The, the criticism is more, why can't you grow up? And in all honesty, like, why can't he? You know, and mm-hmm. like, I, I think, you know... I think what I said is, like, accurate to why he can't. Mm-hmm. But she doesn't understand that. Mm-hmm. And his psychiatrist doesn't understand that. And... His war-obsessed uncle, which is uh, <laughs> maybe the funniest performance in that yes, movie. I agree. Especially when he's talking about, well, can I, can I, can I learn how to kill people? Yeah. Can I strangle them like this? And the guy's like all into it until like, yeah, he's like, whoa, right? <laughs> can I, can I keep, can I keep souvenirs like the, the uncle, the uncle, the uncle and the Romeo and Juliet actress are two of right. the best bits. Hilarious, yeah. really, really good. Um, but I think like Ruth Gordon, even at her age, is like super charming. She is. In this. Like, you know, and I, I think ultimately... She's very spry for being an older older lady. Yeah, and um, I think I think this is a really good choice for a romantic comedy. I think this is a really good choice for number one. And because out of all five of these movies, it's like... I think they all have these things that obscure the... Maybe My Best Friend's Wedding actually comes as close as... As close to this as what I'm going to really say, besides this movie, is that I think better than maybe most movies I've ever seen in terms of dealing with romance. This is to me what love actually feels like. Is like the idea that is is the idea that he wants to change and be different and better for her, right? Without her forcing him to be that way, right? Expecting him to change anything but being right. what he is. Right. Like he 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 wants to change and be better and grow up and, you know, engage in life even though he's been obsessed with the idea of like, you know, death for so long. It's like she's the one he cares enough about her and loves her enough that he's willing to change. Right. You know? And does in the end when he like so one of the best scenes in the movie is the last scene where He's like she's she's dead. He's mm. speeding away. He's what is it? A, a Ferrari or a Porsche or something Porsche that he's thing, converted yeah. into like basically like a mini hearse. Right. So he's speeding away and he's in tears and driving along the coast and you see the hearse like go off the cliff and it explodes on the ground and then the slow pan up to him standing on the cliffside, no longer wearing like the somber, you know, blazer and suit combination with the tie. He's wearing like a like an unbuttoned shirt with like slacks and he's playing a banjo and he's playing the Cat Stevens song and sort of like dancing away into like, you know, the sunset basically. And Mm -hmm. it's a really hopeful look at the fact that even though that relationship has ended, that he can carry it beyond that. And that she's changed him for the better without Mm -hmm. like forcing him to change for any reason. You're right. It is. it's, It's a very heartwarming movie in the sense that you genuinely feel like these are two people that have fallen in love with each other. Yeah. Despite the age gap and despite like the differences in their initial, yeah, whatever starting points. Vincent which... Vincent Camby criticizes the scene that I'm getting ready to mention actually, but um, the piano playing scene where she's playing the playing playing the piano and she's just like making up like the L I V E, you know, live and I think he thinks it's too on the nose and it's embarrassing. Um, as she's trying to teach him how to live, she's singing a song about like telling him to live, but. To me, that scene is more about him 
getting over his own fears. Like, why don't you go ahead and sing? And then he's like, you know, I, he starts singing with her and he doesn't know the words because she's, I think she's making them up. And it's like, but he's trying to follow along with her. And he starts. No, it's, it's, it's a Cat Stevens song. Is it? Yeah. 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 Yeah, uh-huh. um, maybe her singing. I didn't recognize it, but well, she she sings it weird. Okay, and when right. he starts to come in, he's so like atonal, yeah, and missing like words of it that yeah, it sounds yeah. weird. But it's it, but it's, it's like the fact that he tries to do that. Yeah, like and you've already been established with this character for forty minutes and know that that's not him. Right, but like the fact that he starts trying to like sing, like he's he's become more courageous through wanting to be what he thinks he needs to be for her. Right. You know, um, not that she's asking him to do that or wants him to do that, but like he's, it's of his own volition. And I think that really represents that feeling that people get like, you know, when they meet somebody and have those feelings. Yeah. Them like laying in bed together and spending those times together Mm -hmm. and just doing small things. It, It feels like the romance feels earned in this movie, which a lot of reviewers were creeped out by. And made comments on right, but you know, that's the point I think, and that not not that you should be creeped out by it, but just that like, like to your point that love is like love, you know, and it doesn't matter what form it takes. That it really is just like an examination of. And honestly, if it was an old man and a young woman, I guarantee that those reviewers wouldn't be as creeped out. I think it's the fact that it's the other way around that people can't like wrap their mind around. You know, right? I mean, he's a weirdo. Harold's like weird. Sure, he's um, a socially awkward, backwards guy that can't get out of his own head, and this woman brings him out of his own head. And I don't know. There's only one piece of criticism I really want to bring up to you about this, and we can kind of wrap up this movie. Um, Vincent Canby says, as performers, both Cord and Gordon, they both are so aggressive, so creepy and off-putting, that Harold and Maud are obviously made for each other, a point the movie itself refuses to recognize with a twist ending that betrays, I think, its life-affirming pretensions. This is so, who? This is Vincent Camby? Vincent Camby. Yeah, it's, it's... So, but it, it raises an interesting question in the idea of, like, this is about living. And the idea that she's convinced that you should die at 80. And I think that's what he's talking about when he's talking about it's betraying, it's life-affirming pretensions, is the idea that, you know, they should be together and they should go on. You don't just prematurely end it, like, because you decide that's the age that you end it. And that it almost sours the life-affirming nature of the movie. I don't agree with that. I mean, this is a woman who's lived her life to the fullest... And she talks about that, like all the things that she's mm-hmm. done. She's lived her life to the fullest. And I mean, she just is under the impression that this is where it ends. But it's, I mean, at that point, it's almost allegory, you know, that it's more about like, it doesn't, like, bad things are going to happen to you that are going to make you sad. And that's just part of life is being hurt, but that you go on from that and you grow from that. And that's, you know, what Harold takes from it. That's why Harold isn't wearing like the somber like mortician suit anymore you know and he's like skipping and dancing away you know in in the sun and it's i don't know like it's i don't know i i i think what really bothers me is the pretensions were 
Because mm-hmm. I don't know that it like has any pretense to it. I think it is a life-affirming movie in a lot of ways. I have one last thing I want to ask you now that I think about it. Because um, Dave Kerr did mention in his review, I think he said some things are beyond the reach of whimsy, if I remember correctly. Um, I forgot to include it, though. Uh, what do you think about the concentration camp serial mark, like them showing that on her arm? Do you think that was necessary or not in the movie? And like, why do you think that they would choose to go there for that very brief moment? It's really tough from a modern perspective to answer that question. Hmm. I mean, you look at the glut, and glut is a terrible word to use, but you look at the abundance of movies that focus on the survivors and Mm -hmm. the horrors of, you know, concentration camps and Nazi Germany and Schindler's List and Life is Beautiful and, like, all these movies that are about that. But there's a very definitive point where that is actually something that's discussed in film and shown in film, right? Mm -hmm. And in 1970, I cannot think of many movies that would even dare to broach that subject as something that you could... So this is a... So... In a lot of ways, I think it's maybe really important because this is someone who's survived ostensibly the most horrific experience that a human has ever inflicted on other humans, right? Mm -hmm. And still maintains this just abject, abject's not the right word, this profound love for life, even though she's been through the worst things ever. And Harold, who's been through almost nothing, I mean, the death of his father sure is is sad, but he's got a life of privilege and refuses to live it, refuses to take advantage of his opportunities. And it's, again, like, you know, we, we grew up in an era where you just, you knew about the Holocaust and you talked about the Holocaust and you saw, I mean, you've had, you know, you teach at a school where you've had survivors come and like Mm -hmm. speak at your school. Like I've met people who were survivors and like been to the Holocaust Museum and seen these things and it's one of those things where it wasn't talked about for a long time so for them to put it in there I mean I think it's pretty powerful I think it's important like I don't I think I think Dave Kerr criticized that he says he said that some things are beyond the reach of whimsy I believe was the line Um, that's true but I don't know that it's it's not portrayed in a whimsical no, way. No, no. I, I think yeah. it's... I, I, I mean, I think it's character revealing is yeah. what it is. Is I think it's supposed to... I think you just said it really, but it's. I think it's there to try to show that in the, in the face of what happened, probably happened to her in her life, that she... The bravery that it takes, the courage that it takes to still love life as much. Right. And... I think it's really important because it's almost like that courage is what she passes on to him. Yeah, I agree with that. Like I, so I think it's I think it is important in some way of establishing some some of her character. Agreed. Um, I agree. So, um, before okay. we finish, I want to yeah. talk about Hal Ashby for a minute. Sure. Um, I think Hal Ashby is a really like depressing Hollywood story, yeah. in the sense that you know, for about. Eight or nine years in the 70s, Hal Ashby made a lot of really good movies. You know, you have Harold and Maude, The Last Detail, which I love. 
Um, Shampoo, which is really good. Being There, which I think is a fantastic yes. movie. And for Hal Ashby to just, like, fall off and do nothing, basically, yeah. after that. And, like, he was almost blacklisted in Hollywood. Like, he got this really bad reputation. and For cocaine use, correct? Yeah. yeah. Brilliant director. And it's just really... I mean, the, the last detail, I don't know what list it ever shows up on, but I love the last detail. Yeah. It, it, one of my favorite, my favorite Nicholson performances. And a really powerful movie... Harold and Maude is fantastic. I mean, yeah. Shampoo is really good. I love being there. Be, being there, I'm assuming, someday, somehow, will end up on a list. Yeah, I don't know what list it shows yeah. up on, but it's a really good movie, and it's just crazy. 1970s, Fish Out of Water. Maybe. Yeah. Crazy that somebody with that much talent, you know, could just go from being... You know what it's like? And I know you don't like him that much, but to me, it's like John Milius, mm-hmm. where it's like this guy who was just like, like hit after hit after hit, and then like nothing. Mm-hmm. And for Milius, it's because of his association with, you know, Reagan-era republicanism and, like, his appreciation for war and stuff like that. And people just, you know, liberal Hollywood li- fell out of favor. Yes. I, I would say, say, though, he goes a little bit beyond Reagan-era. Like, I mean, like, he's he's pretty far to the right. He like, really is. And is very unpopular even among some moderate Republicans. But, you know, so it's, so it's, it's interesting because <laughs> it, it sort of harkens back to the, like, beginning of this podcast, which is when you asked me, like... I mean, I completely agree with the idea that, like, Bruce Willis said a few years ago, that Republicans do get a reputation in Hollywood, and, like, I think Willis is a pretty moderate Republican in a lot of ways. So I agree with that, but I think that Milius is a slightly more extreme case than that. So, but here's the question, like... I'm not saying it's fair either, I'm just saying. And again, like, and I fall into this trap, too, because I said, like, I don't want to ever put a Woody Allen movie on the list because he creeps me out so much. But, like, when can you separate, you know, a director from... Or, like, an artist from themselves, right? It's a good question. Like, Polanski. Like, Polanski is a monster in a lot of ways, but, man, do I love repulsion. You know what I mean? Right. Like, and, and then I would ask, like, you know, when it comes down to, like, the, 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 the individual level of these directors, what's the difference to you? Like, then it becomes a very personal thing. What's the difference between Polanski and Woody Allen to you? Because Polanski, oh, there's nothing. They're both disgusting. But you would put Polanski movies on a list. And you would talk about it. Because the the thing... Is it that, because he's starring in it? No. It's because, Woody Allen, I mean? It's not. It's okay. because the thing that Roman Polanski did happen before I was born. Mm-hmm. And even though I know about it and I find it to be deplorable, I don't have firsthand knowledge of it. In the mm-hmm. sense that, like, I never saw it on, like... Mm-hmm. I mean, I've seen it, obviously, in, like, documentaries talking about it and whatnot. Right. But Woody Allen, like, I remember when he... I remember Sun, the National Sun, Enquirer pictures. Sun Young Moon or whatever was that her name? I cannot remember her name. Um, the uh, Mia Farrow's adopted daughter. I yeah. remember that and thinking right. like, man, that's really creepy. Yeah. And then when you read like um, like Tisa Farrow like coming out and like, you know, like talking about this abuse and stuff, and sure. it's like when it's happening, especially as an adult, when you see and those things in real time, like it makes it so. And much... How ironic and perfect is it that Ronan like is so, like. Is, has been one of the best investigative journalists on this Me Too stuff. I right. mean, like, yeah. there has to be a link there, like, psychologically somewhere, well, sure. I think, you know? I mean, you know, his, his sister got molested. Sure, by, right, yeah. It, it, like, I don't know. And it also is because it's not like Roman Polanski pushes that agenda in his movies, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, Roman Polanski, absolutely no excuse for what he did, and it's disgusting and probably should have been held fully accountable for his crimes at some point. Mm-hmm. But doesn't make movies about old men 
picking up young girls. Sure. And Woody Allen sure. is like the classic like predator where he's putting himself like cinematically in these roles where he's almost justifying it and then all these actors are sort of like accomplices to it by being in his movies and it's really like creepy and off-putting and it just makes it difficult it's difficult to look at something like oh man what's the one where he's the boxing journalist and what is that movie it's like a later like the 90s Woody Allen movie I can't remember is that Mighty Aphrodite? It's Mighty Aphrodite. Yeah. Right. Because Rappaport is a boxer. Yeah. Like, yeah. And it's like, like movies like that, like it's just hard sure. to watch them and hard to... But could you do it with, could you talk about Bullets Over Broadway? I could talk about anything, to be I, honest with no, you. I understood what I'm saying. Like, is that easier than the movies that like... No, because even that, has, even that has that element to it. Yeah. Because it's got, you know, the older established actor... Um, who's sort of like creeping on the younger girl who's kind of in love with True. him until she yeah. sees him with his girdle off, right. you yeah, know, yeah. and yeah. even yeah. though it's played for comedic effect, like there right. still is that element. You're right. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's, he's a creep for like a long time. Yeah. And it's just like, I don't know. It's yeah. just hard to, almost impossible to look past. I mean, it, uh, it's, it, I think everything <laughs> almost anymore, you have to take on an individual basis. It seems yeah. like, I mean, the world's become much harder. Right. <laughs> um, with those kind of things, I mean, especially like in the news right now with like Louis C.K. like going back on tour, yeah, and you know, uh, maybe prematurely, you know, I don't, I don't know when that, I don't know when that ends, you know, right. like well, I mean, would never equivocate what Louis C.K. what Louis C.K. did to like what Woody Allen sure has been accused of. Agreed, agreed. And but also, I'm, you know, and the other thing too with Polanski, like you look at the one movie where I think he really kind of like touches on that subject of like child molestation and like taking advantage of a young person is repulsion you mm -hmm. know sure and it's a condemnation of that it shows like the apps like the absolute psychological trauma that can be inflicted upon a person by terrible things happening to them in their childhood and woody allen like is a celebration all the time and it's just man yeah. like i can't get past that shit like do you think really there's tough. a difference with polanski too of what happened that even though it's disgusting and it's awful, it's like we don't know what happens psychologically after the murders, the Tate murders. Oh, but yeah. you know, I mean, I I don't know. I don't. You would think like that. I would like think about that. I don't really ever equate those things. Yeah. I mean, I assume that he was incredibly like yeah. It's got to like destroy you. I mean, sure. he was like so in love with Sharon Tate, right. and then all of a sudden, like it's yeah. all gone. So right. I don't know. Yeah, that's that's really that's that's a really interesting point. I mean, but does that ever does anything ever like excuse? Nothing excuses it, but I'm right. I just wonder if like in like psychologically from the background, like you know, there's something buried in, deep in the back of the mind. Is like is is that was that really him? Was that the trauma manifesting itself in some way? And it doesn't excuse it. I just wonder if like. It's like the man goes through a really public, right? You know, mourning period. Like you know, yeah. like it's 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 highly publicized. You know, I mean, it's like some of the most famous murders in this country's history that the Manson family was. You know, so so I would my answer to that would be that is a very interesting question. Yeah. If he had ever sure served his time, agreed, and agreed, like, stood, agreed. like yeah. had 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 justice been served, yeah. 
I would think about that, you know, and maybe yeah. that's I was just wondering if you did think about it ever, like, and it maybe it tied into, like, why, another reason why Polanski is different from Woody Allen. No, I honestly, until we started talking about it tonight, I've honestly really never made that comparison in my head. Yeah. Um, although I find it really difficult to watch Roman Polanski movies anymore, but I still, like, I also think Roman Polanski is a much more talented director than Woody Allen, so right. to me, like, and maybe that's not fair, but it's like easier for me to still watch a Polanski because I just love those movies more. But sure, okay, okay, that's all right. Like, poor so, Hal Ashby. <laughs> um, like I said, I think a couple of those movies will someday we'll find probably ways being to talk there about definitely them. will be yeah. on the list someday. Okay, um, so next week we're going to be jumping back into the horror B movie list uh, for 1981. And uh, the week after that, we'll be taking a break. And then the final week, final Friday of the month, we will be recording a third man series with our friend Aiden Boyer, uh, uh, the best of Spike Lee. Um, so we'll be talking about um, two of his movies and probably a lot more about his filmography mm-hmm. along with that. So maybe a secret third. <laughs> um, so <laughs> uh, we'll be knowing that. And then uh, by the end of the month, we'll have our schedule completely planned for March. So thank you for listening, everybody, um, and have a great weekend. Yep, have a good night.